the Sunday Morning Linux Review with Mary Tomich, Tom Lawrence, and Tony Beavis as the Beaver. And this is episode 299. Who wants to say the name? App Security Update. ASU? No. <laughs> <laughs> this is Tony Bemis. Tom Lawrence. Phil Parada. Jay LaCroix. And, uh, yeah, so App Security Update. There's a, a little bit of issues with App going on. We were slapped with a security problem. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, we can get more of that in depth on that uh, during yeah. the tech news section, but uh, I guess we can start with uh, what have we been doing the last couple of weeks? Tom, you want to go? Oh, sure. Um, mistakes were made. Uh, and so I liked running beta software because then I can learn and <laughs> everyone else can learn. And then I learned that the beta software caused some real problems with the uh, Zen server I was running. Mm. So, yeah, I was trying to um, show how to do the backups and tr- test this new compression they're adding. Um, I think I brought it up that, hey, we're doing it. They're doing this new compression, I think, in the last show. And then that turned into me trying it out. And uh, it's, it's, it's in beta. <laughs> and, oh. so, and it broke all kinds of corrupted things and uh, fun stuff. But, you know, that's life. That's part of the fun of it all. Um, yeah, that's other... what I'm always worried about. Compression is whether it's going to corrupt the actual files if there's some kind of issue with it. Yes. Well, it didn't corrupt the files. It actually caused a a puzzle that I haven't completely solved. Um, What it does is it makes FreeNAS crash because that's its destination. So FreeNAS loses network activity whenever I run it. So I don't know what it sends down the pipe that causes FreeNAS to have the problem. So the problem is a little bit deeper, and so I can't file a bug report with them because there's no – you can have dmessage open – and it copies the file over, and then it, when it does the compression part as it's copying, FreeNAS goes, I'm done talking on this network interface. It just decides to stop. And you can run DMessage, there's simply no error. That interface I, quits accepting I bet it's data. it's in the NIC itself. I think it's in the like, NIC itself. Because there's DMA NICs do a lot of encryption or uh, yeah. uh, encoding you know, right in the NIC itself. And that's probably where Yeah, it is. so that was Or certain... the driver for it. Yeah, and everyone's uh, when I brought it up to people, their immediate thing is, "It's a real tech, isn't it?" Like I don't even have the like, just don't <laughs> use real tech. That's like everyone's answer, which I think that's a very legit answer. <laughs> so everyone's like, "You should be using an Intel NIC." I'm like, "Well, my primary interface is an Intel NIC, and it never has problems, but it's assigned on a different segment of the network, uh, so that's yeah, tricky." Mm-hmm. Um, interesting thing though is, so does the other the the Intel NIC that stays online fine? Oh or? yeah. So There's it's actually, just that one NIC goes yes, off. Yes, it, uh, it has four NICs all together, and it has a, uh, how was that company called? CTX, CXGB is the driver, um, Mel, not Mellanox, but it's the other one. They're the other big 10-gig company. The 10-gig NICs work fine. It's only the Realtek one that does it, but the Realtek one is the only network that's attached to it because I use a, um, you know, mm-hmm. keeping security in mind, I have a physically, not even a VLAN, physically separate network that my servers are on, Um and that network interface is attached there. And I, I just haven't bothered moving that segment of the network over to 10 gigs. It's just where uh, backups are occurring for all of my uh, VMs. That so, makes sense. Yeah. I just like them physically separate, not even VLAN separate. VLAN separate is like someone could click a VLAN and merge it into another on accident because they share physical space. Because mm-hmm. people ask, why is there one dumb switch in my stack? I'm like, because there's one dumb switch, so I can't make dumb mistakes. <laughs> <laughs> it's You have to physically hook up to that network to get on that network, and that is my security network. So Because, you know, you got to keep keep it all separate. <laughs> yeah, I get it. Um, 
a fun thing, and we talked about it a little bit for the show, and I'll bring it up again here. So clients got an interesting uh, – they actually got pretty far with it. I, I've never deployed this with any open source or more common tools. Um, but basically, it's so you can have WPA um, authentication. I want to do it slightly different because I think there's an easier way to do it. I want to try it their way, which is by using WPA2 Enterprise with a username and password authenticated against a free radius that then, this is done with PFSense and Unify, uh, drops you onto the VLAN based on your username and password. So you have all these VLANs set up, and the goal of this particular project was for an apartment complex. So each apartment gets a user ID, which is their apartment uh, unit number, um, and then a password assigned to them. And that's what puts them on that particular uh, VLAN, and then they can have all their devices on that VLAN. So they all share it on the same network with complete segmentation. The other way to do this that I prefer um, that does work is Captive Portal. Um, when you do it with Captive Portal, you can do the same thing. So I have not tested the VLAN switching with Captive uh, Portal, but it should work fine. They like to use WPA2 for reasons, but here's where I get a little bit confused. If you do it with Captive Portal, you have to be assigned to that network first. Will it automatically reassign you properly with Captive Portal? With WPA2, you're not assigned to a network. You're answering it in the stack of the Wi-Fi uh, with the WPA2 Enterprise, so you're not even attached to a network until you put username and password, and then it drops you in the right network. So there's a few challenges to sort out. I think that's probably, Tony had mentioned he had seen it done on the WPA2 mm -hmm. EAP. The bigger problem, uh, well, the cha only challenge uh, that has not been solved, even though Let's Encrypt was properly validating the domain of the um, PFSense machine, it is a fully qualified domain name. It is recognized. The uh, error message we still get is the EAP inside the cert uh hand it over to the phones, tells you it's untrusted. So does Windows machines, too. They let you know it's untrusted. But Windows machines are weird the way they do it. Hey, this isn't uh, signed. Okay. And you just click OK you don't, inside the little um, Wi-Fi dialog box. This all happens not in a web page, but in a Wi-Fi dialog box. And it just mm -hmm. says, you just say OK, and it connects, and then you move on. So mm. uh, that's going to be an interesting project to solve. Um, other than that, you know, my stack of more things to review. We did some tool reviews, finally. Uh, for those of you that like the physical layer, want to know how to do wall phishing, we now have a few videos up about all the different tools we use for it um, and physically how to use them. We built this. You guys may have seen it in the office here, not people listening. Um, there's been a wall, like a mystery half wall that's mm. been floating around the yeah. building. Uh, we finally did the demo on, on the wall of like how to pull wires through, walk you through the process, what tools you need to buy, the little how to put a mud ring in from basically like I don't have a hole in the wall to I have a wire in the wall and a nice plate on it uh, process. So um, that's been fun. It's a popular YouTube video because a lot of people like I, I don't know because I've been a lot of places. A lot of people do not how to do, do not know how to do this properly. Like I'm doing a public service if I can if I can go into a place and and just see properly run wires. I'm always smiling. I see crooked wall plates. I, I'm actually staring across because I see a crooked plug over there. Mm -hmm. um, this does include us talking about the why you use a level. Yeah. <laughs> so, it's an aesthetic thing, we know. It's not a functional thing, but trust me, crooked wall plates across a building, yeah, it's noticeable. So I was trying to think of a pun of fishing in the wall. Oh, I, yeah. I just look down from the ceiling at Tom as he types his passwords. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> you can see the properly installed wall plate at the top that we did, and you can see the one at the bottom that was existing, sir. Someone clearly did not own a level. So, mm -hmm. yeah, anyways. <laughs> All right. Uh, what about you, Phil? Um, I've been playing a lot with Kubernetes for uh, various reasons. Um, trying to wrap my head around this whole 
uh, notion of scheduling jobs, where a job could be uh, a Docker container, or you could think of a virtual machine as a job that comes online to run a script or some sort of application or a service. Um, typically, Kubernetes does it with containers, but there's support coming eventually where a VM can be a job. So that's kind of cool um, to help bridge the gap uh, from people who run purely VM infrastructure to, well, I don't really want to learn containers yet. How do I put my VMs into um, this this job scheduler? And uh, a job scheduler allows for certain things like um, the the machine that a job is running on can die and the scheduler will put that job onto a different machine all without you having to worry about it. It can handle load balancing for you, um, traffic ingress and egress, um, ton tons of cool features at the cost of complexity. And that's what I'm trying to learn. So the mm -hmm. past couple of weeks have been spent reading documentation, falling asleep at the keyboard, continuing to read documentation, and <laughs> beating my head against said keyboard. Um, Kubernetes is the back end for much of the way Google runs their infrastructure, correct? It's... Uh, it's a, a evolved version, I guess, of Borg. Borg is mm -hmm. what Google runs. Okay. Borg and Borgmon, and Kubernetes would be the open source version of that. Got it. Mm. For Container the rest of us. Yes. There we go. Thank yeah. you. So it, that's that's what it that's what it tries to solve. I mean, you can run a Docker container on your Linux machine, no problem. What it tries to do is have a centrally managed way of saying. This container needs to run at said time or after said event, or this container needs to run all the time and be resurrected if it fails, or this container needs to um, dynamically expand and more containers be created as load increases or de deleted as load decreases. So it's essentially what it is, but it's a really it's a pretty cool project, I think. Um, on a much smaller scale, but and obviously very focused on Zen Server, this is actually something built into Zen Orchestra that has some advantages. There's a lot of scripting to start and stop VMs on service schedules and things like that. Granted, it's only designed to control native uh, Zen servers, but you can use that for orchestration. Um, one of the things I'd seen someone set up was where they shift all their VMs to different, uh, set for load balancing reasons, moving them to different servers based on different time of day. They can just shuffle the infrastructure starting and stopping. And all. It's, uh, it's actually one of the advanced features that is in the Zen server software. Um, well, Zen Orchestra specifically, because it's not actually at the Zen level. It's all done in Zen Orchestra. But it's uh, for some of these people that have like eight, 900 VMs running, uh, they use that tool to help migrate things around um, and script it. So it's kind of it's kind of interesting that Kubernetes obviously scales beyond it because it's uh, probably agnostic about the platform. It's heavily invested in Docker, but I, I think it they want to probably you know support more things than just Docker, which I think makes sense. I have been studying it too, but I don't, I don't know how long you've been studying it, Phil, but I, I've been, I was reading about it, then I, I have it on hiatus right now. I need to dust that off and get back into it because I have actually purchased vouchers to take the certification exam. I just need to get back into it and, you know, kind of refresh myself, but it's a pretty cool project so far. Uh, uh, there, There's a use case for me, so that's why I'm studying it. If I was to just study it to study it, then I would have dropped it a long time ago. That's my problem, actually. I don't have anyone telling me. Well, I mean, my, my company, we're going to start using it, but we don't know when, and I need to probably learn it before they decide all of a sudden, hey, we're doing the thing. 
should probably know it by then. So an an easy way um, and the way that I got into uh, container orchestration was from the HashiCorp tool called Nomad. It's Mm. it's a lot simpler than Kubernetes. And um, I just enjoyed the experience more. Uh, just from a getting started um, with without having even gotten started uh, hmm. aspect, but that's what I've been doing for the past couple of weeks. How about you, Jay? So I don't talk about this a whole lot, but I am a big fan of music. So I just recently started taking guitar lessons, and I sound completely terrible. It, it's <laughs> it, it, very very embarrassing, and my fingers are actually sore. And I never thought that would be the big problem with playing guitar because I thought it was learning the chords, learning the notes. I didn't expect that my my fingers would be numb, but I'm really enjoying the the process. So I guess you could say my fingers are comfortably numb. <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah, that and that's pretty fun. But in, in terms of you know the subject matter in our our wheelhouse here, I've been checking out AWX which is um, uh, it's basically a front-end to Ansible. It's like the open-source upstream version of Ansible Tower. Cool. Um, which didn't used to be open-source, but you know now it is, so anybody can download it. And Ansible is a very popular configuration management utility that uses uh, YAML syntax for basically sending configuration jobs to machines. So you know, if you want to spin up a machine, you can set up a list of instructions that'll basically define how the machine is supposed to be and Ansible will take care of interpreting your playbook into actual commands that'll make it happen. And AWX is a front end on top of that, which basically gives you a graphical user interface on top of Ansible. So you can basically with you know point and click just send a job to a machine or see the results of it, see a dashboard. And this is because I want to have more I want to basically centralize my home network more. I mean I already have Ansible in place, but I don't have any graphical front end, I basically just do all command lines. So I thought maybe AWX would be a solution for, for the, what I want to achieve with this. Maybe Jenkins will be a solution, so I'm looking at that. Landscape from a, from Canonical, the makers of Ubuntu, have a solution as well. And I'm basically comparing these to find, okay, what is it? Well, I don't even know completely what I want to, want to achieve. I just know that I want a graphical representation of my servers and, and everything and be able to see what's doing what uh, to the point someday where I would hope that anytime a machine comes online in my network, it just gets provisioned automatically without me having to do anything. So basically just want to take automation to the next level. So I've been looking at these solutions and I don't know a whole lot of either or, or any of the three I mentioned, but I'm just kind of trying to get a feel for those. When you need Jenkins help, let me know because mm-hmm. I've done just that. Um, okay, for your situation. Oh, good. Yeah, I, that might even be what I go with. I, I was actually kind of thinking hope not. Well, but let me know. Well, we'll see. Be, because I was thinking it would be kind of funny because there's a open source solution called Mycroft, which is basically an open source version of um, Alexa. Yeah, um, that's that's what uh, my wife and I want to run in our house one day because we will never have one of those Alexa or yeah. Amazon Echo Dots in our house. And I'm, I'm thinking the same thing. So I, I thought it'd be funny if I walk into where my servers are and I say, hey, Mycroft, run app, get update on everything. And then it sends a Jenkins job that then SSHs into everything <laughs> and updates everything, then sends me an email saying the, the job is done or something. I thought it'd be some really cool 
automation things I could do with my home network. And I'm just kind of trying to feel out how I want to do this. I thought it'd be pretty fun to see how far I can get the automation. And then in addition to that, I've been still into the whole YouTube thing like more than ever before. I've just been recording like crazy. Uh, if you don't already know, my YouTube channel is learnlinux.tv. And I have been recording a lot of Python videos. I thought it'd be a fun experiment to see if my audience is interested in learning Python, my favorite programming language. I have six videos recorded already. None of them are uploaded yet. It'll probably be at least a week or two before the first ones start to filter up. But that's been what I've been do what I've been doing is recording a lot of videos and I I normally record ahead. I finished the Proxmox series. I'll probably come back to it at some point to do more, but for right now, um, the YouTube channel is growing like crazy right now. I, I, I'm actually kind of shocked at um, how much higher the numbers are, how many more f viewers I have. Uh, it's, it's, I guess people like to hear me talk about Linux for some reason, so it, I guess it translates to YouTube. So that's basically me. Very cool. You're, you're talking about the always listening devices. I actually ran across an article the other day, and I'm trying to look it up. There is somebody made a thing that goes on top of your uh, your Echo or on top of your Google Home that will actually block it from listening to you. And then whenever you do something, and I didn't read the whole article, so I don't know whatever that you have to tap on it or something. Then it like it does whatever it does. I'm assuming it has a like a suction cup that goes over the microphone that when you tap it, it turn it you know picks up, and then you could talk to it, and then it'll do what you want. And then you I guess you have to tap it again to turn it off or or whatever, but. Hmm. Uh, it's it's a neat little art thing, and for the Google Home and the Echo, it actually just looks like this little blob that sits on the top of it. <laughs> it looks, so it's kind of neat. Wow. Yeah. But uh, for my last couple of weeks, uh, I haven't been doing much. Uh, I kind of put off working on my server. I got uh, I got depressed that I can't get it fixed. <laughs> <laughs> server depression's a thing. I know. <laughs> So uh, I just been biding my time trying to figure out what to do cheaply, uh, or whether to go move in a different direction. So, yeah, I just think your time is valuable. So, you know, at this point, in my opinion, I would I'd move on to some other solution because it just seems like a lot of your time being spent on this server to mm -hmm. get it to behave. Yeah, I think the the end goal is to get a different server, set it up on that, and. Uh, so I'm just like looking around, look for my options. I don't want to be hasty and buy something that's uh, either going to be too expensive or not do really what I need. I know um, the struggle. I've yeah. got several of those kinds of irons right. that are in the fire. <laughs> so one of our uh, listener feedbacks is, uh, I'll just jump in it right now because it's related to this, that uh, he asked about where we're getting some things, uh, you know, cheap online, uh, you know, servers or, or whatnot. And, what Tom had suggested was a place on uh, online. What was it called? Um, Unix surplus. Yeah, Unix surplus, and th so that's an online place. There's a a place that I have been working with is is just a local recycling company that mm -hmm. they uh, specialize in computer recycling, and what they do is they they have contracts with local companies, and in the Metro Detroit area, there's quite a few large companies like. Uh, you know the auto companies and healthcare companies and and whatever else. Um, and what they do is they have contracts with them and saying we will properly dispose of all of your computer equipment. So anything that you're not using anymore, you just send to us, and then we will pay you for 
whatever it is. If it's still working, then we can resell it, then we'll pay you for it, and then we'll resell it and make some money off of it. If it doesn't work, then we will properly recycle it and dispose of it. Um, so one of those companies is what I've been working through. Um, and uh, it's just a you know pretty easy way to get some cheap stuff. Did you find any anything from them? Did you buy anything yet? I haven't in the last couple, like in the last year or so I haven't. In the past, I've done a lot of like network equipment with them and, and just one-offs like laptops I've got from them. Hmm. Uh, but every time you walk in their warehouse, he's got servers and everything just sitting around piled up and it's kind of neat. Yeah, there's um, Craigslist is also your friend uh, for learning where people are dumping lots of stuff. You'll find a lot of times uh, what what will be posted by companies are doing cleanouts, like they take over a building. And they're like, look what we found. We've gotten so many free racks and things like that because just watching on Craigslist, um, mm. just because they're like, someone please take all this crap away because we leased the building, we want it cleaned out from the place that went out of business, and uh, they just want all the stuff gone. That's how I learned. Early on in my career is by getting hand-me-down computer parts, seeing you know people throw things away. Can I get it working? Oh, I was a dumpster diver. I had I, I literally <laughs> I literally put up a Craigslist ad in my twenties where I said something like you know I'll re, you know if you have anything you don't need, let me know. I'll I'll get rid of it for you. And I had by the end of the day a car full of computers and and things. And I just took it home and just started working on how to network these things together, how to fix them. Uh, wipe, reload, uh, test RAM, because obviously a lot of them yeah. had bad RAM and bad hard drives. And then I just really quickly got a lot of skills that I you have know, today. Reminds me of PenguinCon. They do a, a, is it called a Garbage Wars or Dumpster Wars or something like that? And where they just have a pile of old computer equipment. And it'll be like, you know, x86, like, or not, I mean, hmm. you know, 8086 computers sitting there. And the goal is to whoever, whatever team can put together a computer and have it networking first. <laughs> oh, wow. And they're all like the old, like, you know, 8086 things. And so it was kind of neat. What's the software version of dumpster diving? Is that just running scripts off of Stack Overflow? <laughs> so we did it for hacking purposes, kind of, sort of. Um, one, we wanted the hardware that we could find. Uh, in Back in the day, in the 90s, when me and my friend used to just go around doing this, uh, we went to several computer, like commercial computer places, um, and we would get, they would just throw out hard drives and everything. Some of our best scores were hard drives that somehow accidentally got thrown out that were, like, new. Mm. Um, we always found data. Matter of fact, um, this data will include, I don't think they're saying, well, we found a dumpster. Um, it included automotive uh, files and everything from engineering companies, uh, tape backups. Whenever they were done, they just throw them out. So mm -hmm. we acquired so many things. Wow. And, and it's amazing how people don't take peop you know, privacy when they're There was no concept of it in the 90s. In yeah. their defense, some people do consider tape backups to be garbage. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I remember, I know this isn't about IT, but it's still a security thing. When I was, when I, I do photography, so I went on a uh, Detroit photo tour where we actually go into abandoned um, buildings. And there's this abandoned, I forgot which building it was, but you go toward the executive suite and there is a stack of pink slips and employee records with with their addresses, all their information just out in this abandoned mm. building. And I'm obviously not going to say where, so no one knows. But it's, if somebody was like in a, to steal identities, it's like you, you go there, you get it, or you just get a hard drive off of Craigslist and someone didn't wipe it. And then, you know. Yeah. When we acquired sad. this building, um, there was piles. We don't, not sure why, but there was at least 50 pounds worth of x rays here. Oh my gosh. Wow. Which wow. this was never a medical facility we verified with the landlord. He has no idea why they were here. Mm. <laughs> He's like, do something with them. Oh, wow. <laughs> That's not good. 
Yeah. So we, we dispose of them properly. We have a friend who does. There's there's actually some materials in them that are worth recycling. So anyways. <laughs> yeah. Got to gotta recycle. Got to destroy We cared about the, whoever those people were that had lots of back. Lots of x-rays. Just pounds and pounds of them. <laughs> anyways. Physical security. Physical yeah. security is important. All right. Are we in listener feedback now? Yeah, let's move on listener feedback. And ooh, uh, no, I won't click the button. But Thank you. Uh, because we'll <laughs> should, should, I, should I address the highlights of a uh, letter we received from someone? A physical letter mailed to us. It's, yes, uh, this is nice. And I won't get the full name, but uh, Robert, we did receive your letter. You did use the proper address. This uh, via snail mail. Um, we did uh, read through this, and he had some really good points about editing. Um, that we will definitely take into consideration. And Tony not clicking that button is a direct result of this letter and mm-hmm. the listener feedback. Because, yes, we do need to address the fact that we have a phone number that doesn't exist anymore. Well, it exists. We just don't know where it goes. <laughs> we, can, we can only know it doesn't go to us. <laughs> um, so I also found it kind of – he had a couple of interesting points of uh, could we not only install solar panels on our roof, but could we put a uh, – build a green roof? And, like, I don't know if you've seen this where they build, put dirt on a roof and they put grass on there so it becomes, like, a part of the uh, green. I have I seen thought, that. Yeah. I've always been worried. Like, that's a lot of weight to that's put on how the I roof. Feel you got to really beef up your your building to I, do that. I'm not yeah. a structural engineer, so I'm not sure um, at what level. Uh, but I do know a structural engineer, so okay. I could ask. It's interesting. Uh, what else? A couple other things. Oh, yeah, all the uh, – well, point uh, – good point taken on all the um, – on all the audio updates and things like that. Uh, let me see. There was one more. You talking about uh, AV Linux and... Mm. Yeah, what, AV Linux is interesting. I never liked running a full dispro, distro just to spin one up just for audio editing and things like that. But, yeah, um, I know that I do know they exist. Actually, I think that's how Tony used to do it. I It wasn't specifically that, but I, um, I ran uh, Ubuntu Studio for a while. And it was interesting. Oh, yeah. It's just there's those distros are are really geared toward somebody that's professionally doing you know 100 percent of this all the time, and for for something that we do once every two weeks on our you know it's easier right. just to install one or two tools to get yeah. it working. And because they're the same tools that I use to edit my YouTube channel, my YouTube channel actually, like the audio, for example, doesn't really, I bought, once I got new equipment, I don't really have to do any post-production anymore. My earlier videos required it because some of the wireless mics I used and things like that, the lapel mics, um, there was just issues. They were cheaper ones I had, so I could afford at the time. Um, So I had to do a lot more audio engineering. My newer camera, uh, one of the, you know, it's got a very expensive microphone and a very expensive audio processor in it, so uh, I have to do less now, but I I uh, will do some diligence and uh, heed your warning here. And to answer the question about PA speakers and using them over Wi-Fi, yes, uh, that idea you brought up latency, and latency would certainly be an issue um, if you're trying to listen to them. Most This is one of the reasons, once you start well, breaking things down... What was um, the question? Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, you're right. Actually. <laughs> sorry, details. Um, he wanted to know if PA speakers, instead of having a large PA speaker, if in, if people could have like individual uh, type of headsets that worked over Wi-Fi. Well, the problem you're going to run into right away, and the reason a lot of the things are not designed that way, is if you try to run it over standard Wi-Fi. This is even why there's not a lot of phones that work over Wi-Fi. Um, they always use DECT. Even our vo- even our uh, SIP phones here work over the DECT protocol because they need a uh, fast protocol because if you break everything down to Wi-Fi, TCP, IP stack, 
back from TCPI stack Wi-Fi on the other end and back into an analog sound, there's going to be a lot of latency. Even with mm -hmm. the fastest processors, there's just a certain amount of overhead you're adding to that. Uh, so yeah, you're right, that would be a latency problem on those. So hopefully that answers some of your questions, Robert, and we'll be working on um, the, the details of the show in terms of editing the audio and making sure things are a little bit more balanced, a little bit more level. Yeah. I mean, it, from, from my point of view and, and looking at that is if you're looking for a solution that, where people could have individual headsets... There's uh, a lot of things for uh, hearing impaired people that are out there that, yes. um, and it really works over RF or radio frequency. So there's no real computer processing uh, in the mix there. Uh, and that's more real time where somebody talks and then you can hear it in your headphones. Um, and there's also, uh, I've seen most, I'm sorry, one more oh. thing that with that, uh, most, uh, most PA systems, you know, the microphones all goes to a mixer and then goes to before it hits the the speaker part or or the p uh, the amplifier, then they have that also in the mix that little uh, transmitter, so that you know the person in the back that you know can wear the the hearing impaired headphones or whatever, and they can listen to it also without having anything special like that. So the speaker doesn't have to wear something special. Right. Um, there's also um, I in higher-end audio setups, and we've seen this even at Podcast Detroit, um, their studio has that long, rather large in some of their bigger studios, um, the whole output board, which so everyone can just plug a mic, uh, plug in a headset to it. So mm -hmm. they do have systems like that, and then every headset is uh, individually controlled. Oh, course. that'd be interesting. So like if this was in a church, then they each seat or every right. couple seats would I've have just that. a little headphone jack, mm -hmm. and you could plug into that. I've seen that in other high-end audio places. So each station, when I was actually at the radio station, they have it there too. Every station has its own headset with its own, you have your own controls of your audio uh, for that at mm -hmm. every station. So there are solutions out there. Cool. What else did we have for listener feedback? We got an email uh, about the shouty guy. Um, this is from listener Dan. Uh, thank you, Dan, for listening and supporting the show. Um, he was wondering why the shouty guy, who says distro fever, is back again. Uh, I thought this had been removed. Eh, he comes and goes. We've got him on a, a random function. Yeah. Uh, and it really, the, the reason that he seems to be a shouty guy is because there's times I have uh, I don't listen to the levels right, and it gets louder than what we're speaking at. Um, so it, I I'll take uh, part, you know, uh, blame for that for being too loud. Um, but yeah, we go back and forth, and and if the issue is that it's just too loud, then that's something we can work on. And and today I've uh, made sure it was dialed down so it's not as loud in people's ears. Um, but. Uh, yeah, so we've heard listener feedback from either way, you know, from both ways. That, yeah. you know, some people don't like it, but we've heard more, you know, from more people that they do like it and that it gives, like, a little separation. Um, I, I'm a I like fan it. of it. Yeah, I like it because it gives a, it. to me, it seems more of like a professional, it it's, seems like a professional show where they have breaks in the show. And, I, and instead of actually walking away for 15 minutes while the commercials <laughs> run, then we just run this little thing to, to emulate something like that. Yeah, it's also it's a nice clear delineation of it, and uh, Tony actually made some adjustments pr uh, post uh, prior to the show because we brought this up. So he this show should be well audio leveled from the beginning. Uh, we shouldn't have a shouty guy coming next. Yeah, <laughs> part of me wants to though yell the old rock and roll thing. If it's too loud, you're too old. <laughs> <laughs> but that's probably not appropriate on our show. <laughs> All right. We had a email from George from Tulsa who um, brought up 
actually a lot of good points, but the one I wanted to talk about specifically was the fact, um, you know, when you're when you're passionate about technology, you know, you, you have acronyms that are common knowledge to you because, you know, when we talk on and off the air, this is what we love to talk about. And, um, you know, sometimes we can take it for granted that not everybody knows what Suricata is or not everyone knows what Ansible is. And I know I, for one, talk faster than my brain works half the time. So I hear you on that. That's <clears throat> a problem that I have. Yeah, and part of that is, you know, I have a lot of energy in this because it's my favorite thing. This is my hobby that just so happens to be my job. It happens to be like, you know, all these different things and translate to a YouTube channel and a podcast. So I'm going to try my hardest to remember to just talk about, okay, what is it that I'm talking about? Like I mentioned Ansible earlier. And normally I would just say Ansible, like everybody knows what that is, but I made sure to mention, you know, it's a configuration management utility and AWX is a front end to that and and during my part. And I'm going to try to remember that. I know I'll I'll forget because, you know, it's muscle memory. I just start talking. And um, I think that's a good point, though, because there's going to be some people that are newer than others. I was new at one point myself. Mm -hmm. I didn't know what those things were. And, you know, it's just one of those things to work on. I think that um, that is a problem, you know, speaking for myself, I have that problem. I'll always just start throwing out these acronyms and technical terms because, you know, it's just what I do. So I'll definitely make a better effort on my part there for that. I I completely agree. And uh, in the past, I've tried to make efforts to make sure that we explain things we're talking about. And I kind of got out of that. Uh, So I'll work on making sure that we are explaining it. Uh, I think yep. part of it, though, is uh, in our uh, the industry that we work in, you know, like as kind of the culture, is we try to just talk about all the acronyms so that we seem smarter and everybody assumes that we all know what we're talking about. And yeah. so that's something that even on this podcast is definitely not supposed to be something like that. And, and we need to get out well, of that mindset. Yeah, yeah. I, um, that's right. True. I think the only industry that has more acronyms than us is going to be the military. <laughs> so. right, yeah. And it's hard to find a balance too, because, you know, at what point are you over explaining it? Or at what point are you under explaining it? Like, I yeah. don't want to have like, you know, 15 minutes of the podcast is just us re-explaining the things. But I think, you know, you know, calling mm-hmm. Ansible—it's a configuration management utility. Probably sums it up good I, enough. And yeah. yeah, I think every once in a while we can do a little bit of deep dives and oh, explaining yeah. some of this uh, for new listeners. But and, yep. I, and um, you know, Google's your friend on on this particular instance—not all instances, but Google's your friend. I mean, mm-hmm. you start typing in Ansible. Um, there's a lot of documentation on all the things we talked about. That's one thing about open source projects is there's generally a lot of forums. There's going to be a lot of uh, details on the project. So you it, know, although what's hard is a lot of Open source projects are are spelled different than what it yes. sounds. Oh, you should. Yeah, that's and, probably a good point. And or yep. the name is the same thing as something that's normal in in technology. You know, Ansible. Mm-hmm. Yep. You know, is there's like normal it, things that are thing. like that. Yeah, it, it's, before it was right. software. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's true. So, yeah. Like and centrifuge. <laughs> you know, there's a there's an open source problem project oh. called centrifuge and there's you in, know. in my case it wasn't until <clears throat> tom mentioned suricata I didn't, i've never heard of it before so yeah, and it's an animal when i wanted <laughs> well when i wanted to look it up i'm like okay how is that even spelled right and i couldn't find it and you and just keep finding prairie dogs so I, well I, I didn't even get that far you know because i didn't even know what to type in the search engine for i and eventually i found it but i know what it what it's like to Actually, be on the <clears> other end of color. the spectrum so, isn't there you know? a color that almost sounds like that uh, I don't know, but, but if we're talking about Apache, 
We're not talking about Indians. Hey, I'm just <laughs> yeah. trying to troubleshoot Python here. My snake is all coiled up and on <laughs> <Right>. itself. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so there's definitely... Um, Humans need to invent a few more words. <laughs> Quit right. recycling words, humans. <laughs> he asked about um, Phil's YouTube videos. Which uh, Phil, do you have a channel? Not my own personal channel. I mean, if you search me on YouTube, you'll find a bunch of playlists for, like, gardening or woodworking or chiptunes or uh, random other junk that I've collected in my YouTube graveyard. Mm -hmm. um, me personally being live on YouTube, uh, that's been on Tom's channel, but I think that Jay, he actually meant you. I was thinking so yes. too, but I didn't know if you had a YouTube channel I wasn't aware of. And, um, I, I assumed it was me, but I just, my, my channel is learnlinux.tv, uh, which, you know, that's just how, how you can get there if uh, anyone's curious, but, um, he did mention that. So I, in case there's any confusion over, you know, who's on YouTube, uh, it seems like Tom and I are probably um, the bigger ones of the four. Maybe, uh, and maybe part of that confusion is that we don't refer to each other by names because we all right. sit here in, in our same room recording this podcast. And it's actually uncommon at this point that people are all sitting together talking. Right. So we just look at each other and start talking. And, yeah, and right. that doesn't help the listeners much. So. True. Well, I mean, we do our intros at the beginning, but um, I, I admit, is you, I listen to podcasts, and I know they intro the people at the beginning, but I honestly don't know who's who by the end of the show because I'm much more content-focused. Because right. um, I was just thinking back right this moment to a couple podcasts, I'm like, I don't know which person's which on the podcast I listen to like on my way here. Mm. <laughs> right. <laughs> Yeah. So, and then you guys both, I mean, Phil, you've been around for over a year now, but you're still somewhat of the new guy. And then Jay is the new guy. So you guys, I can no, see how people Now I took that away guys. from you. Now you're not the new guy. Yeah, you're the new, <laughs> new guy. He's yeah. a new, new guy. <laughs> so I, I can see how people can get it confused. Yeah. But I also want to say, uh, say hi, you know, shout out to George uh, from Tulsa, because he's actually been emailing us for years now. Uh, he's been a longtime listener. So I want to say hi and, and thanks for continuing listening. Yeah, and I, I mentioned it to him, too. Uh, Oklahoma's a pretty cool place. I lived there for um, nine, I mean, because I'm really into nature and things like that. And uh, when I was living there for a short period of time, it was so neat, like the different reptiles they have. And, you know, it's, it's definitely a pretty interesting place. So it's cool to get feedback from someone and, in the area. And, and when you get the news, we talk about the fact that Oklahoma's using our sink. Yeah, <laughs> which uh, if, if the reason why we were snickering when we said Oklahoma is not because there's anything against Oklahoma, but we actually have relevant news coming from Oklahoma that we'll be um, talking about. And how they use our sink. Yes. Right. <laughs> um, we got an email from uh, Brian from Minneapolis. He resurrected an old T21 laptop. Um, it's got a 32-bit Pentium 3 processor in it, and he was able to load Arch Linux. Uh, he says, it's not going to wow anybody, but it's still pretty impressive that that old crufty hardware uh, can still run a distro. You know, yep, yeah, I, I loved that too because, uh, for one, it's Arch Linux, if I remember correctly, correctly that I was using, which 32-bit has been discontinued, but I believe it's being kept alive by um, a 32-bit project. But in addition to that, I actually didn't get my first computer until I was 19, and my first computer was a Pentium 3. Mm -hmm. I remember running a Red Hat 7.2 on it before Fedora, you know, back when Red Hat themselves had a desktop distribution, and I remember barely even getting GNOME to run. I remember at the time GNOME was so heavy compared to KDE, I went with KDE because it's the only thing I could even get to run on the thing. Mm -hmm. So it's good to see that that hardware could still be used in 2019. Yeah. 
Yeah, I know. It's I've re, I've been personally I've been like moving away from this kind of thing um, because it's from from what my uses are and my time to to deal with it. it uh, it really doesn't fit me anymore, mm-hmm. but uh, but uh, it doesn't mean that it's not a, a relevant way to use Linux, and and I really like it too. I've been, you know in the past I've taken uh, six or no three eighty sixes and turned them into a router. You know with mm-hmm. uh, with what was that? Um, oh, now I can't even think of the name. The distro it was it was on a floppy disk. You oh, stick it in there and it booted uh, up. Wall. Yeah. Monowall yeah, was the one that used to boot off of a floppy, which I always thought was really novel. Yeah. I believe Monowall is the original, some of the original basis for uh, PF Sense. Mm, oh, yeah. It was yes. the base of, is it PF Sense? Yeah. Um, Monowall no, was an embedded firewall distribution of FreeBSD. Yes. And oh. it became PF Sense because it used PF Filter. Okay. Oh, that's pretty cool. And that's it, cool. Another thing about classic computers, too, um, in my wheelhouse, being a fan of retro games, I mean, you know, old computer games are awesome so that's another reason to keep some of these around for sure yeah um i will say absolutely some of the most wonderful things about 8-bit guys youtube channel it is relaxing and exciting to watch anytime that guy has an update his detailed knowledge of ancient computers i love it brilliant Mm. brilliant if you haven't watched his youtube channel go there spend about seven hours like i have i'm I'm pretty (laughs) sure he's the guy and i could be wrong but i think it's him where they talked about Super Mario Brothers 3 on the Nintendo, which, um, not to go on too long of a tangent, the graphics in Mario 3 on the NES were impossible. Yeah. You could not achieve that level of detail in sprites. The Nintendo hardware was incapable of it. Yes. But via some sort of 8-bit hack with layering sprites in a certain way, they were able to um, use more colors than they were supposed to. I'm pretty sure it was his video that detailed uh, exactly how they achieved that. He covers everything from CGA, some of the earliest CGA mm-hmm. systems and how they had different graphics modes. Um, he even has the details of the people involved in the industry that set these modes and what you could do with them and how they were hacked differently, how they hacked some of the sound cards, how the sound cards work, how the ISA bus works, mm-hmm. and what it was like before the ISA bus and how they used to uh, do bus sharing. Like His details are amazing. He's done some serious research before he puts a video out um it's wonderful to watch mm-hmm. okay enough on the old hardware tangent and nostalgia <laughs> yeah uh we had a few more emails um jordan emailed asking about a storage company uh, that we mentioned in episode 297 45 yeah. drives i'm 99 oh, sure it was them um they have oh they they so they have the Storinator and of course you have to say it like Arnold Storinator oh, great, great name uh, I also saw that they have the Destroyinator they have a Destroyinator oh. for destroying hard drives and they have the Stornado which is their new all <laughs> that is their new all flash system they just um, won the internet yeah officially well you know, it's um the, it's actually well, here's something I love about the company one really cool design really interesting they support unraid and free nas they will ship they'll they'll do more but like their defaults are do you want an unraid system or free nas we will ship it pre configured and set up with that they support pre configured clusters so if you 
um, like each device can hold like 700 terabytes. Um, but if you happen to need more than 700 terabytes or you'd like it mirrored, they will cluster them together for you and pre-build it and ship it to you that way. And the reason I know this is because um, we have a 700 terabyte quote I put together. Mm. This is the other reason I like that company. You can go on their website and actually figure out all the pricing. There's, you don't have to call a salesperson. You can literally just use pull downs on their website, type it all in, and without talking to a salesperson, upload your logo and they'll, pr- they'll print it, it in vinyl on the front of it and ship it to you. No That's way. cool. Yes. That is cool. Yeah. If yeah, you don't wow. want their logo on the front of it, you can get your own. 45 Drives, um, I've heard wonderful things about them. I don't own one of them, but I've heard wonderful things about the company. People have used them. Um, we have a couple quotes. The problem is when people ask for 700 terabyte storage quotes, they, they like the, the idea of 700 terabytes of storage. <laughs> then they go, that's $42,000. I'm like, yes. And they're like, oh, um, I'm like, there's $30,000 worth of hard drives, and then you need something to put them in. I'm like, oh. And I'm like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so sometimes we haven't had anyone uh, commit to one of them. One person's close. They need that much storage for a project. Mm. They started off asking me if they have a used 700 terabyte, if I knew someone. And I'm like, <laughs> I'm going to go and no. Um, I'm not going to spend much time researching either. I told them, I said, there's pretty much not many used 700 terabyte things being pulled out of data centers because that wasn't enough. That, that's pretty cutting edge. So they have a all flash uh, tornado. Yes, it's really slick. It looks great, actually. Yeah, they look cool, but Just shy definitely of not the budget of a home. Yeah, not um, the budget of a home lab. I uh, you can find them used uh, if you look on eBay. They're uh, back to Unix surplus that we'd mentioned earlier. They do sell them used from time to time. Um, for pretty reasonable prices. They're not the fastest ones. They're kind of pricey, but if you have a big storage need and you have a big pile of drives, maybe even 45 of them, because it will hold 45, unless you get the 60 <laughs> model, which will hold 60 drives. 45 drives? Yeah. There's a, yeah. Um, they have a unique, They don't go in like normal RAID arrays that you think of where they load for the front. So check that company out. They're really cool. Um, and they're big supporters of open source projects, uh, including FreeNAS. I search Craigslist right now for 45 drives. And I get a bunch of Dodge Ram v- uh, vans. <laughs> uh, yeah. Hmm. Anyway. Maybe you should be using DuckDuckGo. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Cool. Uh, th- we had a few more. Um, oh. There was a, a few that I didn't comment on, so I think you guys would know more about it. But uh, USB reverse engineering under Linux. Oh, yeah. I remember that one. Yeah, I think Phil and, and Jay, you guys were commenting back and forth with David on this. I don't yeah, know if you remember. I'm, I'm a fan, a big fan of reverse engineering and uh, electrical engineering. I'm not an expert in either, but it is some, both of those types of things I've been wanting to get into. And I've been wanting to get into electrical engineering and um, low-level um, embedded Linux and things like that, um, development on that side. I haven't yet got a chance to dive in. But seeing this email kind of like sparked, re-sparked that interest in me where I'm like, you know, maybe I should sit down and maybe try this one day. Uh, so I'm kind of curious uh, how that worked out. You know, how, how did that go? I'd, we'd, I'm sure we'd love to find out if you've gotten any further in that, uh, in that realm. I sent, him, I sent Dave a link to devalias.net uh, with an article titled USB Reverse Engineering Down the Rabbit Hole. So hopefully... Mm-hmm hopefully something works out for the guy. And if not, hopefully someone else can find this article and finish whatever project that they've got. I think, um, yeah, I think this mindset is great. And, and uh, if more people would kind of have the mindset where instead of, oh, this USB device doesn't work, okay, so much for that, but what does it take to get it working or, you know, kind of 
at least look into if, if they have the skill set or the desire to try to make something work and then it benefits other people that are also running into the same problem, then it's, it actually becomes better for everyone. So the community gets stronger as a result. And the last email uh, that I have is just, um, it's from Javier. Uh, thank you for being a fan of the show and having our backs by finding our missing files for us. Mm -hmm. uh, hmm. He detected a broken link and mm -hmm. Tom fixed it. Yes. Tom's typo, broke link, Tom fixed typo. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Uh, that's all I saw. Um, and remember that if you want to uh, send us info, send an email to, or not info, feedback, I'm sorry. Uh, send an email to show at smlr.us. Uh, all right, moving on to Distro Fever. Distro Fever, where we cover the latest hot distro releases and news. All right, what, uh, what distros did you stand out to you guys? Parrot. So as we speak... I'm transferring it over to my VM stack, the latest version of it, because mm. it's been on my to-do list to do a new review of Parrot. Um, it's basically Kali Linux, but it um, they it has a little bit more than Kali Linux because they went ahead and set things up a little bit. I think that's how they differentiate themselves uh, by adding a few more tools. So you have everything that you get with Kali Linux and more. So um, I'm excited that they have a new release. It's a great way to start learning security testing. That um, comes with things like Burp Suite and lots of other security tools. And those are fun to attack your own network mm -hmm. with to make sure you haven't left something open. I never assume that my network is uh, secure just because I know I closed the ports. I like to verify that I closed all the ports. So using the different uh, scanning tools, it also has some fuzzing tools, which are fun to attack my own web servers with um, to see what happens. I want Someone's doing it right now, I'm sure, um, without my permission. So I like to do it with my permission so I can see what the results are and what it looks like. Uh, so this is a great tool. It's a great set of tools. Um, and for those of you wondering, it's not what the professional hackers use because it's a very noisy tool. But that's kind of the point. It should be setting off all kinds of alarms on your network when you run it. If it doesn't, there's your first step. <laughs> <laughs> so have you done any videos on this? Or, and if uh, not, are you interested? I am definitely doing videos on it. That's what my review is going to be because I've um, done very little. Um, and I'm going to be setting up Parrot probably as a persistent install on my VM hmm. so I can just keep – because once you install it, you can keep updating it and all the tools get updated. Uh, so you can constantly do vulnerability monitoring and things like that. And it's kind of a nice setup for that. So I can just hmm. like sequence attacks as needed against my own networks, which I do. I, as I've even moved it to my security network to attack it. Obviously, it takes really a lot more effort to get on my security network, but you should always assume they're inside. I've used Burp Suite in the past uh, to um, automate old, junky uh, Cisco and Netgear switches um, that don't have a command line interface. So mm. you can do, you can uh, capture all the packets and then do a replay attack. Mm -hmm. And then you can slowly uh, work your way through the logic in these uh, yes. web devices so that you can actually script uh, config backup. Yeah. Oh, that's cool. It's actually really neat to like do that because you can, Burpsy basically sits in between and monitors all that. It's mm -hmm. really neat. Um, and it's also tricky to configure. I tried setting it up on my oh, own. Oh, yeah. It's it's pretty confusing. Yeah. yeah. Um, but in Parrot, it's already configured. You just put the IP addresses in that you want to monitor and you put it on the same network. Um, and because I do this all virtualized, it's easy to port mirror things. So I just oh, port yeah. mirror back to um, Burp because it needs to kind of play man in the middle on that. But uh, with managed switches and that, you can just mirror on a virtual stack and go send me all the data 
Right. Yeah. So if if you're not familiar with what port mirroring is, is on uh, in the networking like uh, network switch side, uh, it normally only sends traffic to the source and destination. You know, whatever port's in and out, and it doesn't send that traffic to any other ports. So if you're an attacker or somebody trying to listen in on the network, you're not going to see any of that traffic. So it's it's a nice security thing. But in in times where you need to do troubleshooting and see why isn't something working right, you have to be able to have that traffic go to another port also. Um, so in the physical networking, like on a, a managed switch, it's called port um, port mirroring and uh, or uh, there's another name for it. Cisco calls it. And it, it hey, Cisco has another moment. name for a lot of things. Yeah, but uh, it it allows all that traffic to to also be piped over to you to whatever uh you know machine you're, you're listening on and you can listen to it all and if you try to talk back into it and try to interrupt that traffic it doesn't allow it you know it it still is just the communication between the other two ports you're just seeing everything come through um you can use uh you can use that concept um to have uh production traffic go to uh staging servers as well um, if you're if you're running some sort of uh, web application or an mm -hmm. internal application, and you want to see how um, actual prod traffic uh, fares against your new version of your application without actually mm -hmm. rolling it out, okay, it's a strategy. Yeah, I didn't think about using it like that. I I would think there would be if it uses TCP, there'd be some kind of like handshake problems and stuff, and it wouldn't actually work right, but. Um, but if it's like a stream of data, definitely, yeah, that would be good. Um, cool. I saw Clonezilla got an update. Yep. Um, uh, yeah, definitely one of my favorite uh, tools for sure. You know, it's funny. Uh, last, and two weeks ago, it had an update because we brought it up then. Because I, I think this is might be actually the same one as the last one. Because I because some of the um, yeah. Yeah, description kind of because I remember they were man mentioning network manager, but I'll bring up deep in now this is interesting i was uh adamant that you should never use deep in uh because he had spyware inside of it hmm. that sent data to china um but what's interesting is i guess they uh through public backlash decided to remove it hmm. I, that's what i heard um hmm. it still makes me worried that it was there ever but i also in uh this is what the discussion went around is because Tony has spent time in China, there is generally a different attitude to, well, of course you give it to the people's government mm -hmm. if you're Chinese. Like, they just assume that's natural for them. Assume, is the same way we assume it's natural to give our data to Facebook. <laughs> so, yeah. um, different attitudes they have kind of dictated that, I think. Uh, but they've, I've, I read correctly, they've decided to remove and drop that uh, telemetry. So, interesting. Um, I don't know. I've I've thought about giving it a try because one thing I do say for DeepN, uh, it's really pretty. Like if you're looking for a beautiful desktop environment, DeepN uh, that it'll scratch that itch. Hmm. So uh, Netrunner has a new release, and I tried that distro years ago. I actually did a review on my YouTube channel, and this is way in the early days. And I remember, I don't remember why, I remember not liking it. I just really didn't have a good experience with it. A lot of people were saying it's, it's like a really amazing distribution. You have to try it. I just didn't like anything about it. But I bring it up because apparently the distro that I reviewed versus what Netrunner is like today, they're completely different. Like they, I don't remember what they were based on. But what's interesting is that Netrunner 
uh, I guess it used to be based on um, Ubuntu. I could be um, wrong on that, but now it's actually based on Debian testing or Manjaro, which is kind of an interesting mix, right? Because the rolling one is based on Manjaro, but then the stable one is actually um, based on Debian testing. So it's kind of interesting that they have two completely different backends for the two different versions of Netrunner. Might be something I might want to give a try because any problems that I might have had with it um, years ago would probably no longer be the case today because it looks to me like they completely redid everything. So it's probably, mm -hmm. it's a KDE-based desktop environment or distribution, and it seems like they put a custom theme on there and they have some additional tweaks that they add on top. So uh, that might be something to check out if anyone's interested in a KDE distribution that was released as well recently. That's version, uh, we're at 19.01. Cool. Um, there's one I see on here, and I, I, it sounds interesting to me, and I was wondering if you guys had, had heard of it or used it, is Zevinet. It's a load balancing uh, distro. So there's, you know, there's product, uh, corporate versions of like, like F5 is like a big name one, or... Um, and then there's this Zevinet. Uh, looks like it's the open source version. And uh, there's all these corporate uh, appliances that really it just runs Linux in the back end. And then they put their saf software on top of it. So I'm like, there's got to be some sort of like open source way to do this. And then here I see it on DistroWatch, Zevinet. So it's it allows uh, load balancing of all sorts of protocols. And it'll do, um, you know, HTTP, HTTPS. Um, balancing and and um, termination on the ser on the server and it looks really cool. Um, Neat, yeah. yeah, that's cool. And Man, that's it. I think that's all for we reached the end of the list. Yeah. All right. So I guess we're moving on to tech news. Tech news and views. All right. So, Tom, you want to start us off? <laughs> well, we'll start out with the uh, show title's sake, is we're apt to find a lot of problems like this. Ooh. <laughs> Ooh. Uh, yeah. So, apparently there's a little bit of a flaw in the way apt-get parses things. And uh, there's a proof of concept I like to in here from the security researcher to discovery. So, it's not... The, the packages themselves, so the question has come up many times about whether or not we should use HTTPS. Now, HTTPS transport layer is supported in apt, um, and it's this would help mitigate this to an extent because this is a potential man-in-the-middle attack is what's required. So every package is signed, as in there's a cryptographic signature. We verify that the package we are getting does all apply to uh, the distribution like we make sure we can install it we make sure that it's not been tampered with so you can't just inject another package during the transport layer that's why it was safe to use http but where the problem comes in is parsing so apparently um there's ways you can inject and the way it handles the parsing is is where the problematic is is that how you read this phil yeah it's a remote code execution right so mm. what happens is uh, you request a URI, so um, mymirror.org slash new-uri in some package name. If I redirect 
if my web server redirects that somewhere else, um, you will get uh, the redirect location. However, uh, apt was not verifying that redirect. So this attack um, specified the entire payload of a redirect with a valid header pointing at um, an invalid uh, hacked package. Right. And they have a direct example of how they do the payload in the link there, showing how you can basically add an, an interesting attack vector to it. Like they spell it out in, in, in good detail here of the different redirects that are uh, in use to be able to do this. So obviously very scary because here's your first problem uh, when you have to update this. If you were being man in the middle and you're like, oh, I got to update apt because there's a flaw in apt, you could get pwned by mm -hmm. updating apt to solve the flaw in apt. Mm -hmm. But don't worry, there is a solution. Um, you sudo apt get update and there's a way you can um, add allow redirect equals false, basically saying if someone tries to redirect this, ignore it. Um, so there is a way, there's a mitigation uh, to get the new apt. It's been fixed in a new version of apt, but you have to mitigate the old version to update to the new version. So something to think about from a uh, security standpoint on doing it. And of course, the other question is um, that no one wants to think about, do we nuke and pave every server before today and before mm. that was run? Hmm. <sighs> In my opinion, yes. Start where it makes sense. Mm -hmm. Start where it makes sense. Um, so there's some rebuilding, and this is why you should learn how to have servers automatically rebuild themselves because <laughs> they need to be rebuilt. I want to point out this researcher's name because it's fantastic. His name is Max Justice. Ooh, mm. I didn't even notice that. Is that is amazing. I like it. <laughs> That's funny. So you, rebuilding, you know, on the individual side, it's it's kind of hard to do, but uh, that can be easily scripted through like Ansible or something, right? With with enough uh, blood, sweat, and tears, yes, it can. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, it's. I mean, I know, like on the uh, data center side, like uh, for colo companies, that they have where you can just rack a server, and the first thing it does is it checks into the. Uh, what is it, Ansible or whatever automation system that you have. And then it says, okay, now I install this, I install that. And so it's, you know, as long as you're not going to lose any data, it's easy to wipe and just rerun that, that script and uh, and then you get all, you know, the proper packages. Ubuntu, had, uh, Canonical has a cool solution called Metal as a Service, M-A-A-S, mm. uh, that does just that. But you have to run a lot of supporting infrastructure and it's not exactly for the for the home user right um interesting too uh mr max uh justix so uh apparently he has been poking away at package managers so for all you red hat people celebrate your uh secure package manager be careful <laughs> <laughs> um, they may be coming for you. It may be, I mean, this has obviously existed for a while. So I, and I think it's important because this is a very fundamental basis and now we're poking at some of the fundamentals, which is something absolutely that needs to be done. Yes, definitely. So I, I wonder how many more, uh, problems will emerge from this. <laughs> Maybe with other package managers. <laughs> yep. Here's looking at you, Arch yeah. Linux, although they'll probably have a better chance in, Debian Ubuntu, but we'll see. I'm sure they'll probably be on the list too. So mm -hmm. the last thing we'll do is get off this topic and move on to the next mm -hmm. one. <laughs> Ugh. <laughs> Ugh. <laughs> we love puns. We're all in tech. 
Um, key pass ponage checker. Now there's more than one of these, but I wanted to raise some awareness about this. And uh, it is something I recently covered as a video topic. Um, have I been pwned has been around for a while and you've also had the hash of passwords. But there's people for obvious and really good reasons don't want to go type their password to see if it's been pwned into some guy's website. And Troy Hunt is a trusted security researcher, but they have a very valid point. Um, I can leave, I'll, I'll leave links in the show notes to both this and other methodologies. The way these work is uh, they use a SHA-1 and uh, take your password, hash it through a SHA-1. Now what a SHA-1 hash is going to do is generate a fixed length hash of your password. So it's not easily reversed into being your password, uh, but obviously there's a methodology which you could reverse a SHA-1. Then they take only the first five characters because there's enough entropy in them and compare it to the database. And that's what this is doing. So um, this is a a methodology that you can have to see if your password has been compromised. Um, which I have absolutely been shocked at some of the simpler passwords that I recall from my 90s, younger, less entropy-driven Tom um, have not been pwned, which is fascinating to me, Mm -hmm. including one of the gaming passwords that was easy to type um, that no one ever pwned it. But it is also a way you can do this without sending your password all the way across the Internet. Um, Because obviously if you type in a password to that site, you can... Uh, if you know you trust Troy or you don't trust Troy, but typing your whole password into some guy's website to see if it's been in use feels bad, um, feels yeah. wrong, and feels like you shouldn't use that password anymore. No, and if you have like a mail, you know, some kind of malware in your local computer that's logging your key strokes or something in your browser, that's in the browser would be the bigger worry. Then, then the fact that you're typing your password in, even though it's a known decent site it's still a problem yeah. potentially yeah so it's something really interesting but uh, i like it and it's actually more and more um, companies are integrating into their password managers surprisingly so, LastPass is not one of them so this is i, I think we skipped what the actual tool oh it's is. called a uh, key pass ponage check yeah is what the name of the tool is so um, if you use the key pass mass uh, password manager then it, it does it just automatically go through all your passwords and check to see if it's yes. on that list yep and it's only sending um, the first five characters of a SHA-1, so simply not enough information at all mm-hmm. to uh, reverse it. Not like it's harder to reverse. They're not sending the entire SHA-1, mm-hmm. hence it's not reversible. And I'm actually, I don't, uh, I'm going to leave a couple links um, later uh, that are for a couple other ones. One of them is just a bash script that does the same thing, so you can type your password from a command line to the bash script. Um, and if you follow me on YouTube, I have a demo of how to do it from the command line without even using a bash script, just how to mm-hmm. type in uh, your password, pipe it through SHA-1, grab those characters, and then use a curl command uh, to do a verification so you don't have to send anything. You don't have to trust some bash script. It's really, it's all of two lines uh, to do. So it's really simple, um, but it helps give you peace of mind to understand what's going on behind the scenes and how you can check your passwords. You might want to also research how to clear your history. Yes, thank you. I was about to mention that. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Especially if it's a shared server. Yeah, yeah, you may want to clear your bash history after that too, so... Very, very good point. And most, um, you might want to check this, Bash RC or the configuration for Bash shells. If you put a space in between before before your command, it won't be in the history. That does depend on how your distribution has shipped your configuration. Mm -hmm. So you might want to verify that before you you actually use it. But that's often the case. Most distributions will recognize a space as something you don't really, in the front, you don't want that in your history. Yeah, I thought that was interesting that I didn't know that. Um, That was a weird tip someone shared with me a while ago. I'm like, so you just add a space? I'm like, oh, it's not in the history. That's fascinating. Yeah, if you look at your your Bash RC (laughs) file, 
in, in your terminal config, and you'll see it there, where it's something like hist equals ignore space, I think it is. Something mm. like that, yeah. 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 Actually, I made an alias in my, uh, as my aliases, that for any time I type ls, it's a space ls, so that never shows up in my history, because mm. I don't need oh, my history full of just ls's. That's, that's actually really smart. I know what I'm adding. That actually is... Pretty Genius. brilliant. Yeah, that even thanks. might end up in mine. I'm going to add it to a couple things. Speaking of uh, bash history hacks, something that saved my bacon in the past is adding a date and timestamp to the bash history oh. commands. Mm. So that way, let's say let's say you do something in the middle of the night and you wake up the next morning, you totally forgot what you've done because you were on zombie <laughs> mode. Just Whiskey typing mode, what... I'm actually thinking, but okay. <laughs> zombie <laughs> mode, yes. Is that called bashing while drunk? Yeah. <laughs> don't, don't drink and bash. I'm just throwing it out there. <laughs> you wake up in new operating systems. <laughs> so then you can see what you did at what times. And mm. this also helps for uh, incidents, um, mm. uh, getting, getting a flow of commands. Um, because mm -hmm. while you're going through an incident, you might not be looking at the clock. You might just be running investigative commands or um, anything else behind the terminal rather than keeping track of time. Yeah, and that would definitely help with uh, correlation. So you're looking, this is when the command was typed, and this is when the SQL server died. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> yep. How how does that uh, handle when you're trying to just do, uh, you know, up arrow? Does it stick all those times in also into that Ooh, line? Or? That's a good question. I don't have that answer. Okay. I didn't know if this was like just an idea that you were floating or oh, if it's um, something that's been done. It's it's something that's been done. I used to run this and I need to again. Oh, okay. okay. I like it. Well, I'll tell you, let's do some testing on that and report back. Yeah. Well, one like thing it. I do is I put my, I actually put the date, or not the date, but the time on my PS1 prompt. So yep, if I look here. at my terminal, I see the the, the hour and minute that the, the command was executed. And then I configured my bash history so that it shows the date, time, minute, seconds, and everything in each entry of the bash history as well. So even if I lose so my terminal session, I can still hit history and still see that information. Okay. Do you have uh, you have a link of how you did that? Because that'd be interesting to. Um, I don't. I just have it in my config, so I could maybe put some options in the show notes that people can include in their bash yeah. RC yeah, if they're interested. Put on your getting it. Yeah, do a video on it even. Yeah, I still haven't opened up my Ansible yet I, someday. But I, at the very least, I could put some of these configs inside the show notes if someone um, wants to immediately my, use uh, Yeah, I'd like to see it. My config, because it's a frequent question because I've done so many landscapes, it was like, how did you customize your terminal that way? It's one of the reasons I keep it on GitHub, mm -hmm. uh, the customizations I apply, because it's just a common question people have. And it, it's honestly how I figured it out. I seen a config I liked, and so that's how it ended up that way. So putting that on your uh, somewhere open where people can download it, yeah. It definitely will be the case. Uh, that, that's at least something. Soon. It's easier to open up than your Ansible. <laughs> yeah, and that that that's something I might consider doing as well. Because I, mean, I would I would add yeah. that to my collective for sure. I think that's a great idea. Yeah, I'll just uh, put my entire Bash RC on some publicly accessible thing and a link to it in the show notes. There we go. Awesome. So, Can, oh, uh, some people might not be able to read through Bash RCs. Well, is there a way to like highlight that section? Uh, or or maybe st still stick it in I the show I think so. I'll look at Pastebin and see if they have any way of highlighting specific lines. Uh, I'll look into it. Okay. We'll see if we can do that. All right, thanks. Yep. So Wine has been aging all the way to version 4 now. Uh, Wine 4.0. And they, the big news is they added Vulkan and Direct 3D12 support and game controller support. So pretty much this is uh, 4.0 Wine Gaming. 
which as I, I'm seeing its relevance drop off, I'm happy that the project's still moving forward, but I'm also feeling like the relevance is dropping off as more and more places are native coding for Linux, which is obviously the more ideal situation uh, yeah. for those of us that want to play games but don't like Windows. I, I think you're right, but also at the same time, I think that the trend might reverse because with Proton and Steam, I feel like some developers that would normally have considered a native Linux port might say, you know, we could do the native Linux thing, but they have Proton, so let's just make it for Windows and just make sure it works to the best we can get it in Proton, which Steam supports, and then they at that point don't even have to do a native port. Now, I don't like that, but it is a trend I think could possibly happen and, and reverse that back the other way. To riff off of this, uh, there's an article that um, came out just a couple days ago uh, Steam's Proton now allows you to launch Windows games from other stores. So let's say I have a bunch of oh. good old games or Green Guy Gaming. I can now load those Windows games in my Linux Steam uh, Proton player. That is huge mm. because if you think about it, I mean, Diablo 3 is not in Steam. Exactly. Diablo 3 does run in Wine, at least it's run well for me. So that Same here. hypothetically could mean I could have Diablo 3 listed in my Steam client all in one place. And um, there's, there's some reports that the games running in Proton run better than the native Windows client. I would which say Which is also interesting. Probably the case. Mm. So, yeah, it's interesting. I don't, um, I'm not the biggest gamer in general, but I think it's cool when I see any of this. Like, it's it's converging, and I want to say most of the gaming industry, they hate Windows 10. Like, people who play PC games, yeah. they, they, they're, they don't really care about the operating system. They really just want their game to work, and not, they care about the operating system to the extent that Windows 10 is causing their game not to work. So, um, <laughs> yes. they're, they're actually, they, they you can talk to some of the people I know that are really into this. Like, even professional games are like, we don't care about the operating system. Like, whatever works. So, I think at the end of the day, what it all comes down to is, you know, people that play games like myself, we need some time to just unwind and have some fun, oh, have yeah. some leisure time. And and some people really enjoy the specifics in, in the um, technologies and how things work. But I think the majority of people, they just want to play their game, right? Yeah. They, they just want to play their game and they don't want to have to spend any time getting it to work. So I think with Proton, it kind of helps with that because in the past it's been reading a blog entry, how to get X game to work, and then you go through wine bottles and all these configuration settings. And at the end of the day, you just soaked up all the time you would have spent playing said right. game, trying to get said game to work. And now they're demystifying that, I think, is a very big value to a lot of people. I like just pressing the button on my Switch and then Mario. Yeah, that's <laughs> that's one of the reasons why I'm such a console gamer. Uh, I do love PC games, too, but, but you know, yeah. I have, like, what, 22 game consoles in my collection right now? Um, and that's, like, um, off the top of my head. Um, that's where I gravitate. But there's a few games that don't make sense, like Cities, Skylines, which is like a SimCity clone there's a console version of it, but uh, games like that and Civilization, like the simulation games, don't probably uh, translate well to console. So there's that, but yeah, I do agree. Just having a console, just hit, hitting the power button and um, playing the game when it doesn't have to download 12 gigabytes of updates. Um, yeah. But but no, that's right. It's just a, here's a set-top box. Everything's conf yeah. configured to work. Press and go. Yep. Now... 
One thing that's been uh, eluding uh, some of the industry when it comes to the open source is reproducible builds. And uh, NetBSD hits 100% reproducibility in its builds. They just announced wow. that. I thought that was pretty mm. impressive. Congrats, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Debian's up there. I know theirs is pretty far. I don't remember what percentage you're at. I know they were pretty up there. But uh, to give you a better idea what reproducible builds are, reproducible builds are you have um open source project where yes we can see the source code but is the binary that i'm running the same as the source code i mean yes we know you can compile it yourself in the earlier days we had to do a lot of compiling ourselves anyone who's done that realizes just how long that takes to do uh, so we generally download pre-compiled binaries but we want to verify that the source code was produced those hence reproducible builds it's easier said than done because if i use a slightly uh, variation in one of the libraries that built the binary or some parameter added to the GCC compiler, um, you will get a slightly different checksum on the binary versus someone else who built the same binary. So this is basically documenting the entire methodology by which a binary was produced. Um, so you can reproduce it too, and you can be confident that the packages and the binaries are the ones provided by the distribution. Might be a good thing now that we have the apt issue that you do, do yes. reproducible builds mm -hmm. to make sure what you have on your system is what you're supposed to actually Yeah, no, have. very valid. Especially with this next one, back to package management. Someone hacked PHP Pairs site and replaced the official package manager. How long ago was this, though? Uh, <laughs> that's what seems to be less than clear. Um, from what I read, it was at least six months ago. Yes. So there's been malicious pair... Um, for six some bad pairs there's a <laughs> lot of pairs. there's a lot of rotten pairs out there so <laughs> wow yeah this is in the good news is i double checked i can't think of anything i know i have played with it over the years but i have nothing in production that i've ever built with pair well uh pf sense it's a php uh tool um at least the front end yeah um so if they use uh pair packages which they probably do i can go look at the source code i guess yeah um that's a good so pair is uh it stands for php extension and application repository so is it more of just like things that you would throw in your includes when you're writing php apps or php pages or is it all the way down to like full-on php apps and you know uh like php bb kind of thing uh, i can't verify uh they definitely use Pear. <laughs> mm. I just checked the PFSense 2.4 release notes, uh, which we should all be running latest. Um, they replaced local copies of PHPair libraries with the official sources. So PFSense itself has been moving away from Pear, thankfully. Yes. Mm. All right. So that's a, that's a good thing, but... Yeah, this is uh, certainly scary on the package manager front, and uh, we we talked about uh, is it Python and some and their library. Someone had some basically utilities similarly <clears throat> named in Python that got added to the repository. So if you mistyped something, uh, you got the wrong utility that wasn't designed for that. Some bad eggs. Mm -hmm. Some bad eggs. Uh, yeah, it's bad snakes and Python and bad pears and <laughs> PHP. Yeah. <laughs> it's interesting that, uh, you know, hacking as it evolves, you know, in the past it's always been get to the individual computers and then it's moved on to, uh, you supply know, services chain. that you're connecting to and then now supply chain. And, uh, and it's not just, you know, the repository. It's now they're going for the package manager itself and... Uh, 
yeah, this is interesting finds, and and uh, it's good to hear that they're fixing it. Yeah, supply chain attacks are um, like the holy grail because, well, you think about this six months, there are like millions of infections. Like you, mm-hmm. you're because you're in the pipeline itself. So, although Pear has it been fixed? Because I just went to their website and it still says service is down. Uh, there's a mitigation where to get the. They have the official fixed ones under Git, but the Pear website, I believe, is well as of today, is still broken. Mm. So yeah, it's still it's still an issue. Um, but you can get it from their GitHub, uh, which has been verified good. And I believe their GitHub was never compromised. So if you were pulling from the GitHub, you were fine. It was a problem with their website, not the GitHub. Oh, wow. So it depends on where you got the packages from. And I believe a lot of automated utilities would grab it from their website. Uh, but people compiling code probably reference their GitHub. Mm-hmm. So you're, it's you're really interesting because I would have thought, you know, I mean, no, I trust GitHub as being like, they have security minded and yes. they have a whole team of people doing it. But you know, I almost, for a long time, I always thought if you go to the individual page and not like this, like high profile site, you know, mm-hmm. like GitHub, it would be more of a high profile than the individual page. Right. Although then there's less people working as security engineers on the individual pages. So we'll see. I don't know, but PHP, it's a pretty big project. It's yeah, it's not your average project. It certainly drives quite a bit of things. Uh, they said WordPress is now running. Was it like sixty percent of the internet or something crazy? Yeah. Um, WordPress is just beat up everybody. And by the way, its competitors also run PHP. So, um, mm-hmm. yeah. Mm-hmm. So it's really interesting. WordPress, PHP, all the other projects. A lot of dependencies on it. Nextcloud. Nextcloud. Mo- many of the projects we've talked about on this show. P- PF Sense. Even sec- it's a front end. For, it's you know the front end interface for a lot of security products. Um. DHS, Department of Homeland Security, orders U.S. federal agencies to audit DNS security for their domains because it's always DNS. <laughs> I thought that that was a pretty good article. Yes. Um, they've got a lot of steps uh, that even though uh, you as an IT administrator or systems administrator um, might not work for the government, uh, you should still follow some of the steps in this article yourself. Yeah. Uh, we take... Uh, DNS very serious here at my company for a couple reasons. One of them, it would not be rocket science for someone to figure out where my remote connections all land because I publicly host them. I have to have this public facing for our remote tools we use. What keeps that secure? The fact that the DNS entries for that point at my domains. So if you were to hijack my domains, you would then be updating all the uh the other day it was i think 575 computers that check in with my systems they do that over secure connection so it's you would only get a certain amount of information but obviously the first step in hijacking that would be getting my dns mm-hmm. um, so i make sure that's all protected with two-factor authentication that it's done properly that it's set up and then i check and test all the time on this so it's definitely um, hugely important. They're gonna, this article does have steps to secure your domain, steps to make sure your DNS is secure. Please, wherever you're hosting this, make sure you have it under uh, two-factor and properly done. And, and if you're with some place that just supports SMS two-factor, please consider moving to another hosting company. Mm-hmm. Looking at you, Network Solutions, largest provider without OTP. I don't know why they don't. They only do it uh, with SMS, to my knowledge, to this day. Unless they've changed it very, very recently, as of when I checked last time. Uh, It was one of the reasons I moved away from my domains off of them was because they don't support proper two-factor. So, Yeah, and this has actually been a problem for quite a while. You know, there was, uh, what, a year ago, maybe less than that, there was uh, some banks down in 
uh, what Brazil that mm-hmm. got their DNS yes. was redirected just for a short amount of time, but it took all their people, all those people trying to log in, and they sucked in all their usernames and passwords. Yep. Because it's trivial to to copy a website. Exactly. But the hard part is to make the URL the same as what the actual website is. And that's where phishing campaigns, and they have a lot of issues trying to get phishing to done right. But if you can redirect the URL, or the DNS name and the and URL their site. matches where you're going, then that's a big, big problem. Yeah. So, it, and it's, that's, you're right. That one, I think we talked about on the show, the one that happened in Brazil. They took over the domain, they repointed it. And by the way, what they're doing is they act as a front end for the banking website. So they actually don't take the banking site down. They repoint the DNS. When you log in mm-hmm. and put your two factor authentication, they're proxying it over and playing man in the middle to the real website. So oh. it's highly dangerous. That's how they were able to, they didn't collect username and password. They need that to- that token, which has a expiration. So their solution is to um, do that, and now they're proxying it, and they have all your credentials, and now they're becoming you. Mm-hmm. So that's why this is so dangerous to lose your DNS, especially if you're in banking, because you as a user, there's simply no way you can tell. Um, mm-hmm. It's so not easily. Something else that you'll want to watch out for is if you have a, if you have a domain, um, but you have no actual records in the domain, someone can come and hijack your domain as well. Oh, yeah, that's interesting. So let's say you just have the name servers. Mm-hmm. Um, you can, uh, and you're running an Amazon, for instance, because this is a, a big place where this type of attack happens. You can iterate through the list of name servers uh, as as an attacker until you match the name servers that your target victim domain has, and then you can start creating subdomains yourself. It would it would be as if you had mm-hmm. control of their domain, mm-hmm. and then yeah. you could issue certificates for that too. Mm. And that's um, that's a bad bad day as well. Yeah. Mm. Protect your DNS is the is short answer to that. So read the article. It's got some practical guides and steps of what you can do to help protect it. And like I said, it always have two-factor on. That's not even an option. Like, it's a must in here in 2019. It's been a must for us for a long time, but even just the general public, whatever you have running, just protect it. Right. <laughs> Make your life better. Um, this is, like, the ultimate super phishing attack that I thought I you know so we see crafted emails going out all the time to try and uh, superfish someone where we're like I want to target Tony I want to take over Tony stuff so that you know I craft what I think Tony be interested in well this goes a step further um, because who's not interested in a higher paying job than what the one you have so you get your target list you create a job offer um, for said target and you know who can refuse that first thing you're going to do is probably if you're smart not email from your work email which has lots of protections and this was used to target uh, bankers and so they set up these job interviews which included a Skype interview so they actually had translators and everything like they had people not wow. just a phishing attack this really uh, relaxes your senses because now you're being interviewed over Skype for a job position that pays more than your current position um, and of course at the end of this we have a executable for you to run uh you know to do some verification and you're not going to run this on work computers maybe or maybe you are uh, but you're going to use the unprotected channels to hide it from your boss that you're interviewing on the job and this was a uh, way to get in so be careful if the job offer is too good to be true it really might be too good to be true so i can imagine them targeting people who work in cybersecurity positions because i mean granted who doesn't? I have a friend who's super, super angry. He walked off his job at cyber, at cyber position the other day. Um, I was like, 
he's just, they won't listen to him on certain aspects. So he mm-hmm. decided to take a break. He just said, I'm just taking a day off and uh, turned his music up loud at work, which got him the day off. <laughs> <laughs> which there's a whole craziness to the story, hmm. but I told you if you came at him with the right job offer, um, you know, so it's, it's an easy way to uh, have your senses lowered here. Cause Hey, it sounds like a job offer. And they interviewed me over the phone. So really interesting angle. Um, and there's the breakdown of how the attack happened and everything else. I'll leave in the show notes. Uh, yeah. Well, it reminds you that you have to be hypervigilant with anybody asking about yes. what your work and, and IP, you know, or, IP as in intellectual property. Oh, yeah. You know, how things are run internally. You know, if, who knows that, you know, it's definitely if it's even a competitor, you know, so. And when, uh, I remember Phil talking about this before, when he's done job interviews at places, uh, they give you, obviously you're you're generic, you're making it generic, but they ask you problem, solution. How would you handle this, Phil? How would you handle a scenario like this? And if you're interviewing for a job interview, you work at a job where you're using those skill sets, so you're going to apply that, interview question to even if you're not giving them the details of the internal stack used or the ip address of the servers um you're still generalizing how you do things they you're giving them maybe edge information at the same time that they may have some concept of how you do it oh mm-hmm. your experience at these things must be what you'd be running at your current job uh, so yeah. it's it's another edge angle that they're getting in where normally you wouldn't disclose any of that but you're interviewing you're like this job offers great i'm not thrilled with the place i work which many people especially in cybersecurity, banking in these places some of these places do not pay very well or whatever so I, it's a really interesting angle i had an interview one time that the guy like i the the hiring manager i clearly knew more about what the job was than what he did and he, in the middle of me explaining what I would do to whatever solve this problem, he started taking notes. Uh, and then oh I never heard back from him. So I wow. think, I don't think you were getting fish. I think you were training someone. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> or he was going to start Googling everything. Yeah. I said, no, well, I can do this now. I've, I've had similar experiences where you go in for an interview and they're just trying to get a solution to their problems. It reminds yeah. me of uh, Silicon, Silicon Valley. Valley. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> he starts detailing everything he did in the algorithm. Yeah. we've. Um, there's been the debate in my industry about whether or not we uh, charge for quotes. Because if I do Wi-Fi planning, just the, the, I have to do research to determine when I walk in a building how many Wi-Fi units you need. Well, it takes some time for me to come up with you need uh, 270 Wi-Fi units in your building. That took time, research, and energy. And, of course, they want that detail. Mm-hmm. Uh, we omit certain details on the quotes. Um, we genericize them to avoid that problem because we know that they're fishing for an answer. Mm-hmm. Um, but it is a, it's a risk, in, especially when you're quoting jobs in the industry or interviewing. So there's that side of it. But there's the other side is if it seems too good to be true, let that raise awareness too. Right. <laughs> yeah. Uh, now we can get to Oklahoma is not okay. And for those of you outside the U.S., OK is the two-state letter, is the two-letter code for Oklahoma. Um, Oklahoma's OK was a slogan. Is that still their slogan? I don't know. I don't know. It's either. been a while since I lived there, though. So yeah. Who knows? Um, the good news is they like open source products. That includes R-Sync. Uh, the bad news is Shodan, the security monitoring uh, system that looks for open things, uh, also noticed that they liked R-Sync. And more specifically, UpGuard, uh, did an entire detailed analysis, and they properly disclosed and talked about what was exposed by the Oklahoma Securities Commission. Now, the Oklahoma Security Commission is the, a state-level version of the Security and Exchange Commission. So if you work in a regulated trading 
industry. And we're going to talk about like you are trading stocks, you're trading insurance, commodities, and things like that. You have to register both with the federal level, you have to have an FBI background investigation, and then each state has their own security commission that also follows up and makes sure you're credentialed properly and that you're not frauding. This FBI investigation, of course, goes more than just your name, date, birth, social security number. It has personal details about you. Well, they had that all, they were backing it up somewhere, and publicly exposed RSync allowed people to back it up to themselves. So all those details were dumped in there. There's a list of everything that was in there. It was um, it, it was too big to just do a general forensic analysis. They had to do in-depth, in like, thousands and thousands of details and files on people. Now, the part of the scarier part is some of the medical records. If you have a terminal illness and you have a life insurance policy, your medical records get submitted as part of the commodity because uh, of the death payout. They want to know where your progression is of this terminally ill bill. So it's more than your average level of medical records being dumped. It's oh, That's so scary. Yeah. And uh, these people have no real recourse uh, for any of this, obviously. Um, but don't worry, they had good documentation over in Oklahoma. Uh, they had a spreadsheet that had every password to VNC, which is another tool that they like to use. So mm. all the login credentials, then all the login credentials for things uh, like services they use, software they bought, uh, you name it. They, they, they had documentation on it in a spreadsheet that was also available on RSync, which also, you know, you kind of wonder, hmm, how accessible was that file just in general on the network? Because, uh, wow, that's everything in one place. So Oklahoma's not okay. Did they say whether this rsync server was running on Windows or Linux? Ooh, they did not. Because I know that there's uh, rsync uh, packages that you can install on Windows. And I've used those in the past. I'm going to say it was running on Windows because one of the things they had, um, apparently UpGuard had noted previously that the Securities Commission was running a ancient Windows server with IAS, um, and they assumed it was probably the same server that ran other things in their network. So there's some of that. So they, one, why are you running IAS? Why do you have it publicly exposed? Um, especially when it's an old, dated version of it. So, yeah, well, I'm going to guess that everything's out of date. Uh, so we're going to go with Windows, but I don't think that was – I didn't recall that being in the details on there. You know, it sure hurts to shoot myself in the foot. But I think <laughs> I would rather do that than run IIS. <laughs> yeah, yeah, IIS is – I'm happy I don't really deal with that anymore. I haven't, haven't in years. makes me happy. Yeah, Everything has moved away from it. Yeah. Um, you know, actually, this story, it yeah. really surprised me that this is still happening. You know, I mean, even halfway – intelligent people that have somewhat of a security minded if you open something up to the internet you have to have some kind of authentication against it and an rsync does not have to have it open for you to to back up going out no they're backing up to somewhere else you don't need that pointing back to you i have actually only ever configured rsync to work over an ssh tunnel just that's the default though isn't it no 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 um, oh. It runs on port 873, and you can set up two RSync servers across. So it's not the secret. default for the RSync server, correct? Because it is for the RSync uh, utility in general. It just uses SSH unless you tell it otherwise. I think it's the common methodology that people use RSync. It, it's the tool that you're using, whatever you're using it for. Right. I, you I mean, uh, specifically, just straight RSync is SSH by default. Like, yeah, it has yeah. a built-in. Yeah, server. but that's not yeah. the yeah. But, but cross, okay. Yeah, 
But if using, I used to have a script that used rsync locally, um, just to rsync directories on the same server, so it never left the server. I used it so I could create um, snapshots of things for revisions. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. Years ago, it was like probably in the early 2000s, it was a good methodology to do that before there were better tools available. So you have another server mounted as a local file system, and you're just to the rsync, it's local. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Got it. Yeah, or even between NFS shares and things like that. I've done, you know, plenty of rsync like that, and uh, in FreeNAS, rsync's built in, so you can just rsync, and it by default opens up the ports, and you can tell the two things to talk to each other. Hmm. Any of these solutions presented are vastly superior to what happened here in Oklahoma. Yes, <laughs> yes. or yes. there in Oklahoma, I guess. Yeah, Oklahoma's not okay. <laughs> At least they use rsync and open source tools. Um, but I mean, when I hear um, that they're using VNC across a network like that, it also screams low budget uh, for IT because VNC is just not the best protocol to use for screen sharing. There's better methodologies out there that are not that expensive, mm-hmm. um, like commercial available tools that are generally affordable. When I've seen whole stacks using VNC, it's usually because their budget was $0, uh, school systems, uh, charter schools we've seen with it, they're like, we don't have a budget to buy anything. Like, mm-hmm. we're just shoestringing this along. So my guess would be you had someone who's like, well, you went from pushing papers, looks like you play on computers enough, we'll make you in charge of this. And so the de- no detail was released to who, who was involved, but we just know this is a common problem where someone who was not qualified for the job was given the job, but they were not given the resources, the training, or anything to use. So mm-hmm. probably, I'm going to guess if there's a debrief that occurs, which I hope there is, also, it's interesting. This is not very big news. Um, there's not many sites even I found covering this. This was kind of yeah. a blip. So, mm, that's and it's weird. big. Yeah. I hope that the country's not getting burnt out on data leaks. I think we are. I think Looking it is. At Either that or hotels. everybody's talking about the government shutdown and nobody's <laughs> thinking as much about the security side. It seems like that's all news is reporting mm-hmm. on nowadays is the shutdown. So there could be that overshadowing other yeah. events too. Right. And in the government did get rebooted, but um, who checked logs or wasn't checking logs? We have an entire Patch Tuesday that occurred. So we don't even know. It's like oh, everyone came right. back to work. Um, everyone came back to work and probably found out what was pwned. Wow. So, Actually, it happened, what, Friday night? So they haven't even back, been they back, haven't to, work back to work yet. Yeah. I know my friend, My friend. Uh, he, he he was calling it Trumpcation and posting because he works in security and he's, he wasn't allowed to go to work. As we were talking about, he's like, I can't even go there. I'm not allowed in the building. So Mm -hmm. I've been traveling and doing stuff and goofing off. (laughs) Wow. Yeah, so he's like, I guess he works in security and he's got to go back now. He's like, he's kind of upset, but he's like, I guess I can't do this forever. Right. (laughs) Anyways. Vulnerabilities found in highly popular firmware for Wi-Fi chips. This is super scary. Um, Security flaws were discovered in a Marvel Avastar uh, 88W8897 system on a chip, Wi-Fi, Bluetooth, NFC, present in uh, just everything. We'll just say say everything from Chromebooks to smartphones to Sony Playstations to Microsoft Surfaces. Um, Just remember monoculture is a problem. Apparently Marvel is in everything. So this whole monoculture, all we had to do is find one flaw in Marvel. And uh, apparently this is a incredibly now this is so bad that one they're not sure how they're going to mitigate it two we um do understand that there is no proof of concept because someone found this by fuzzing the wi-fi chip and said oh boy i can send signals out you don't even have to attach my wi-fi it just has to hear the signal and i get remote code execution it's in the firmware it executes it at that level wasn't there a recent uh 
uh, Broadcom? Yes. Of the same problem? Very similar problem, but I think it took you actually authenticating against it to do it. Mm -hmm. This requires none. But yes, we did. Well, I thought there was like an iPhone update because you didn't even have to attach to the Wi-Fi and it was... Yeah, uh, you know what, you're right, because that was a crash. Uh, That Mm -hmm. was where you put the special characters in there and it would cause the iPhone. That was a fun game. If you added that character to your SSID, the the character combination, the iPhones would just go into boot loops every time they seen it. (laughs) (laughs) That amused me. Um, That is pretty amusing, actually. Yeah. Just be, don't like iPhones? No problem. Add these characters to your Wi-Fi. They just go into reboot mode. Um, And you also figure out who doesn't patch their phones. (laughs) Yeah, you know who doesn't patch their phones. But uh, yeah, this is ah, this is really bad. So it's going to be interesting how we mitigate this. Uh, it looks like it jumps right into controlling the memory block allegations uh, with this vulnerability. So this is you know doomsday scenario. So they're being very careful. It has been assigned? It has been assigned CVE, but of course they're being super light as possible on the details other than of course this is very scary they're telling you what can happen from it we're not telling you how we do it is basically where we're at with this um but there's a good detailed write-up over on bleeping computer that breaks it down and a person uh posted a youtube video called zero click over there exploitation of marvel wi-fi so just to make sure that they're very clear that i'm serious watch me do this they Mm. made they did it um so it's interesting and scary and terrifying um, hopefully firmware patches are available before the world collapses. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to go get live in a cabin for a little 2019 while. 2019 is going to be extremely interesting for security. I think every year is interesting. Even more so than most. I just have that feeling. Yeah. These attacks only get better every single year. Um, over the time of just doing this show, the like Tony said, we went to attacking the people to the supply chain and you know these other attacks that haven't even if you have mitigated them at some level they're not mitigated at all levels so you're it's we have to watch every piece of this mm-hmm. i'm gonna go just sell this business and move i'm like i'm gonna live in a cabin <laughs> right. what do you think phil ready to farm yep all right <laughs> <laughs> let's homestead <laughs> all right uh, I've got an update from uh, the world of Let's Encrypt. Um, this is for the end of life for all TLS SNI validation method. Uh, that method, um, the end of life is going to happen on February 13th, uh, 2019. So coming up shortly here in about two weeks, two and a half weeks. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm going to read a, a community forum post. Um, as of now, the staging environment has TLS SNI fully disabled. Let's Encrypt also disabled the reuse valid authorizations feature in staging for the next 30 days. This will ensure that each staging dry run issuance does a fresh validation, so you can be confident that if validation in the staging environment succeeds, your client is working correctly. A client here being CertBot or Acme SH or the Acme package in PFSense, um, also, Let's Encrypt is changing the final end-of-life date for TLS SNI in production to March 13th, 2019. Uh, this will give people more time to update, and we're going to use the original February 13th date as a beginning of a brownout period. Let's Encrypt will disable TLS SNI validation in production on February 13th and re-enable it a week later. Additional brownout periods before the final deprecation may happen just to get admins ready um, for this. 
The goal of the brownout period is to catch the attention of people who have missed the notification emails. Not every certificate will necessarily review during that window, but hopefully enough that it will increase the number of people who do notice and can update ahead of the deadline. So what can you do if you run your own web server? Um, and uh, I use CertBot, um, like I assume that most other people do. Uh, so the first thing is confirm that your CertBot version is .0.28 or higher. Uh, the current is 0.31 um, as of today. Is that CertBot.v? Uh, CertBot space dash dash version. I am uh, doing it as Phil's talking. <laughs> so the second thing is remove any explicit references to TLS-SNI-01 in your renewal configuration. And the final thing is to do a full renewal dry run. And I've got a link to a community forum post that has all of these commands uh, listed for you. Ooh, cool. I, I will look at that right now because I have some. I have several cert bots flying around. I'll make sure they're all the right version. Yeah, yeah, I'm doing the same thing. <laughs> I uh, but this is really only geared toward people that are running really old versions of cert bot, right? Um, or does it have to be? That's a lot of people. Uh, old. Uh, I guess if you Debian set it to Ubuntu, run and forget about it, then that's kind of an issue. That that's true. Um, Debian and Ubuntu packages uh, for Certbot that come from apt usually lag behind. Mm. Um, I choose to install it through pip, but that's just me personally. What's that version number again? You said point oh two eight. You should be at least on zero dot two eight. Okay. And today's current version is 0 0.31. I'm on 0.140. Oh, Tom, that is very old and crufty. You know who installed that? Probably us years ago. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we'll, we we have a thing to do. <laughs> I'm how on do you, 0 0.28. I'm doing the dry run right now. How do you check the version? Uh, certbot dash dash version. I get errors, but that's for another time. How do I have an older version on this one? Are you running Debian? Yeah. And we probably installed it through apt? Yeah. Not surprising. Okay. Fair enough. The yep. Debian uh, package updates, it's a rigmarole, okay. to put it lightly. Yeah. It is. The, uh, a lot of packages are out of date and Debian stable. All right. Well, I know what we can talk about really quickly after the show. <laughs> Sure. All right. So I have a handful of things here. So uh, the first one I'm not going to spend too much time on because I honestly have never used Chrome OS, so I don't know a whole lot about it. But it just hit my news feed that they are, it's assumed that they're going to be allowing companies to use other Linux distros for apps. Now what that means is there's some kind of compatibility in Chrome OS to run um, Linux apps that it, I guess it's already had. But apparently it's going to allow companies to basically sideload a framework for other distributions to support uh, packages in diff you know, various different distributions. So um, I read that to mean, hypothetically, depends on who supports it. You, know, you have Debian packages, but maybe you have something that's in Fedora. You want that. So you can add something to allow your Fedora app to run on Chrome OS. But this other one is... Uh, SUSE, so you can add that, and now you're running a SUSE app, and then you can have this 
all these different apps running from different distributions, but on your Chromebook. And, you know, again, I've never used Chrome OS. I'm not extremely familiar with it, so apologies in advance if I'm getting the um, news wrong, but that's my um, understanding of what exactly it's doing. It's basically saying de device administrators, they're talking about enterprise IT staff or people that manage Chromebooks or something like that, uh, will be able to designate a Chrome OS uh, or URL for Chrome OS to download the distribution, a hash to ensure the download was successful. If a license key is needed, you'll be able to put that in as well. And then from that point on, you should be able to install packages from that distribution. So that might be... Um, of interest to uh, those of you out there, if any of you use uh, Chrome OS, which I don't, but you know, I thought that was worth mentioning because I never thought of Chrome OS as a competitor to Linux, uh, which I feel like a lot of some people do feel it's that. But it's kind of interesting that they are taking the various Linux distributions so seriously that they're building in the capability of marrying them essentially into one hub on your Chromebook and. I'm not sure if that's because they want the users, but maybe it's because they want developers to be able to test their app on different distributions. That might actually be the more um, uh, reason for doing that, but that's pretty interesting. I, I think there's two. There's some people that like a commercially supported um, distribution that's easy, like Chrome, mm -hmm. uh, because I don't have to worry about, oh, no, there's an attack in app. There's a, a PHP pair module that was right. compiled into the distro I chose, and they didn't check it properly. Um, I just want to turn it on and trust a company like Google not to have those. Because for yeah. all the faults we poke at uh, these large companies at, you got to admit between Google, um, Microsoft, and them, their, their uh, supply chain is well-guarded. Um, and their it methodologies is. are very strong. Um, it doesn't mean Microsoft doesn't send garbage down the pipe, but at least it wasn't intentional. <laughs> yeah, it wasn't malicious. It was just inept. <laughs> so, yeah, <laughs> there's a difference. <laughs> it kind of makes me wonder, though. You bring up a good point. So, how are they sandboxing this then? If they're going to allow any distribution to be um, implemented, who's to say? I'm not running or wanting to run mom and pop's Debian spin that has five users on Reddit and, and uh, just, just someone that, that just decided to, you know, do their own Debian spin and they have implemented some code that is now insecure and now I'm putting that on my Chromebook. Uh, I would hope it's sandboxed so if there's a vulnerability, that's yeah. not going to be a system-wide problem. Mm -hmm. So I guess it would be interesting to look into exactly how they're doing it. Now, my understanding is that's not the case today. Like, you're not able to use this today. But um, it's expected that it's coming. I guess it's maybe in a, a beta version or something along those lines. So um, the next three articles that I want to bring up I'm, are actually all kind of related because it seems like uh, refreshing themes is a really big um, news story in uh, Linux today that, you know, we have GNOME, they're coming out with a new icon theme, which everybody's talking about it. We have Ubuntu's new icon theme, which debuted in the current version of Ubuntu 18.10 and is going to be further expanded in 1904. And then we have a blog entry I'll get to in a minute. So first of all, the big app re redesign, which they're talking about, um, App icon redesign. Uh, basically, this is from 
a blog where the individual here, a developer of GNOME, is showing screenshots of various icons that are being refreshed in GNOME. And uh, so far, they, they look pretty good. Uh, you know, they, they definitely look like a professional set of icons. And I think GNOME has been overdue for a refresh of its UI and its look and feel for a very long time now. So it's good to see that they're doing that. And then we have Ubuntu, another article that I saw recently um, talking about the upcoming version of Ubuntu will have um, additional work on the icon theme to uh, add various features and make it look more professional. So I guess both, uh, rather than Ubuntu taking upstream GNOME's work and just you know using that, they're essentially reinventing the wheel and doing their own icon theme because they have their own branding, they have their own color scheme and everything, which, you know, I, I understand, but, you know, they are essentially reinventing the wheel here. But I also saw an article from a blog article from an individual named Sam who is kind of upset about Ubuntu's new theme. And at first I'm like, oh, well, that's interesting. Why is he upset about it? And what it comes down to is this individual is the developer of the Suru icon set, which he maintains. And apparently that's the icon theme that the Ubuntu new icon theme is basing from. So they're taking his work and now they're, they're changing things and presenting it as Ubuntu's icon theme. But that's not why he's upset, um, because you know people fork things all the time. He brings up a point I never thought of where when you have application icons from a branded product like Firefox, Google Chrome, whatever it is, he's bringing up the point that by Ubuntu changing their icons for those third-party apps, they're basically circumventing the original developer, original company's intended design for said icon. So, for example, everybody knows a Firefox icon. you got the blue circle with the fox um, cozied around it. The Ubuntu version of that is going to basically have a rectangle behind it and implement some orange to it, which is uh, in the background, which is not what Mozilla intended for that icon. And then you have, you know, Google Chrome, which is essentially doing the same thing. So rather it be than it being a circle icon, it's a, made into a square, kind of an oval-like square, curved edges, with a green background. I think these kinds of design elements uh, come and go. Um, will eventually Ubuntu will eventually be back to a circle Firefox icon probably in like four or five years. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And you know it, it kind of makes and that's a good point too. So we have this redesign of GNOME and coming from upstream GNOME I think it's great because they need to do that anyway. They just want to basically make it look good. But um you know we have Ubuntu reinventing the wheel, which I find really interesting here because Ubuntu gave up the desktop. Like a lot of people don't realize that. And and if you don't know what I mean, because they do have a desktop distribution, they it's a community distribution. They are Canonical's making money off of servers and the cloud and things like that. The um distribution for the desktop is just a, a box to check. Yes, we did it. Here's your here's your desktop, go use it. And for them to have so much um involvement in the development of it is actually kind of surprising considering that's not what their focus is. And now they're going against um, common design themes and also at the same time going against what 
um, Gnome is intending. So it's kind of a big change in a lot of work for, for a company that apparently is said not to care about the desktop. So I thought that was kind of interesting. I don't really have a actual opinion on this on whether it's good bad because I'm you know UI design is not my field but I just thought it was an interesting debate that's going on here and uh, the three different um, or the two different companies kind of going a different direction so there's that and the, another new article that hit my feed was actually about Mate which is my second favorite desktop environment which Mate is a GNOME 2 like environment they basically take the old GNOME 2 style and they keep it going. It's actually, as I understand it, a fork of GNOME 2. And they have an interesting feature for a problem that I never thought of before. So basically it's very common to use Mate in a VM or in a remote desktop. So say for example you have a server and you have this app that requires X. So maybe you open Mate to run said app they want to make the Mate desktop environment remote desktop aware. They want to make Mate aware that it's running via remote desktop session. So if you're connecting to it via VNC, X2Go, whatever it is, it'll do some things, make some changes to the design. Maybe you can hide the shutdown button because you don't want someone shutting down the server. You can change it to a disconnect button. So you hit the button and just drops your, your connection but doesn't actually reboot or shut down the system. And these changes are actually going to happen in Debian and then they're going to be made upstream in Mate itself. So I just never thought of that before. I just kind of see the shutdown button. I'm like, I either, I either will remove it just from the panel altogether or I'll just, I'll just ignore it. So mm -hmm. um, yeah, I thought that's that a was good a idea. pretty cool. Yeah. I mean, it's like one of those things like no one's thought of this really. This is, seems so logical. I've never thought of it. I wonder how many times they accidentally had to shut down a server before they were like, oh, we should change this. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. I've seen, so I've seen they do that in other operating systems, so I'm surprised this ha hasn't become like a normal thing. Yeah, so like it'll also, another change it'll make is the Mate screensaver will actually offer a, a disconnect button right there on the screensaver. So some mm. subtle but welcome changes. And... I'm going to leave my section with a couple of nifty apps. Uh, WTF, I had to be careful not to actually say it, um, is actually, I'm referring to a dashboard for your terminal called WTF. I don't know what they actually, are, what it stands for in their case, but it basically, if you have some things in your terminal that um, you want to can, can, you know check continually, you don't want to have like a web browser tab open for it, so maybe you have some, um, you can have the weather, for example. Oh, this is really cool. Yeah, you can have the weather, log entries. You can have some uh, news items. You can have, like, Git branches and the things that you need to keep an eye on, but it's in your terminal. So all I had to do was download it, and it's just a binary WTF. I just mark it executable, and then I simply run it. And... Uh, you know, by default, you don't get very many cool things, but of course, you configure it, add whatever you need. And I can see this being useful for, you know, maybe on your server, you can add this to your server and then maybe have some preset things that you want to look for and just launch it, have a look at various log entries and things like hmm. that. So I've been playing around with it a little bit, and uh, so far, it's pretty amusing. So it's WTF. Uh, we'll have a link in the show notes so you can actually get to it without. Um, finding the acronym. Neat. 
And then finally, we were talking about uh, gaming, and this is a neat little utility I found called uh, Game Hub, which what it does is it allows you to add your Steam account and your GOG account and also your emulators and uh, uh, Humble Bundle and, and things like that. It can sign into all these services and put the games from each of these services in one menu that you can then launch your game. So rather than using the Steam interface, it'll sign into your Steam account, find out what games you have, present them in an interface. You could click on the game you want to run. Same with your GOG account, which last I checked, GOG's uh, official front end doesn't support Linux yet. Uh, but this does. So this this is basically a really awesome utility. And That's neat. Yeah, it's really cool. And you know, one thing I'll mention too about it is you can either install the apt package or whatever it is, or you can run a flat pack or an app image. And I recommend the latter and not the package from the package repo because it was like 137 uh, dependencies it had to install to uh, to to run this. Wow. So I think it's better off in an app image or a flat pack um, package, so you don't have to have all those dependencies. And it works. Just as just as well, because it'll pull in like DOSBox, which it also supports, and uh, pull that in. Which even if you're not intending on using DOSBox, it still pulls it in. So the dependencies are kind of heavy, but if as long as you use the app image like I am, it uh, actually shows you all your games. And and they, me and the author must have uh, similar tastes because he has all the Final Fantasy games there in one <laughs> of the screenshots. So um, it's pretty awesome if you're looking for a a app to basically show all the games from your various uh, services in one uh, do you, UI. Do you know, it makes me think the using an app image or you know some kind of one of those kind of things, mm-hmm. does it use more RAM to run the program itself? Are you actually um, like loading the whole binary into RAM to run it? Or? You know, that's a really good point. I am not exactly sure off the top it, of my head. It makes me wonder if, you know, if it would normally install all these dependencies but it would only only pull up and run the dependencies as they're being used through the program. Right. Uh, and, you know, in the, the typical package, or the, the old style, I guess you would call it package, but uh, in these, um, like, snaps or, or app image, I wonder if, uh, how it deals with those. That's a, that's a really good point. I am actually not sure how that uh, stacks up. I know, of course, it's going to use more hard drive space. Right. Possibly. Because yeah, I'm thinking back, like, if we're running on legacy or, or older machines, you know, that are have, you know, a little bit of RAM, you're not going to have, you know, you, would it make a difference whether you want to install the all the package, uh, you know, dependencies, the old style instead of the... Yeah. I think it would be interesting to take a closer look at that to see exactly how it's doing. Um, I can tell you it's kind of hard to find it in my process manager here because I have so many things actually running, but it's not really seeming to register in uh, any of the top processes for RAM. And um, mm. I, I'm scrolling down a bunch of pages, and before I'm, I'm still not even seeing it. So okay. it doesn't seem to be using a whole lot. I would imagine it, it this in this case it's mainly just a menu, so I wouldn't think it would but that's something that that someone might want to look into if they're they're on a memory starved system so um yeah it's it's worth checking out if you have a lot of computer games from various different platforms yeah cool that's all i have all right so i have a few things that i found Uh, a couple of these i've been holding on to links for the last couple weeks so they 
might have been talked about on other ones. Uh, or maybe they're just not quite as relevant. Uh, anyway, so one of them I just thought I'd mention is uh, Craig, Craig's uh, on security had an article about 773 million passwords <laughs> were breached in, in the mega breach. Wow. And it says it's years old, too. So really what it is is uh, some hacker compiled a bunch of different patch passwords from all these different breaches and put it together in an 87 gig uh, you know, upload. It's available via torrent yeah. for those of you that care. <laughs> uh, anyway, so it's something, you know, it really what it does is it's the same thing, you know, and we were talking about everybody's getting... Uh, you know, getting used to these mega breach or these breaches and, you know, if it isn't over a million P passwords, does it really matter? It's what you really need to do is to be able to protect yourself is you need to be able to have individual passwords for every site you go to. It is no yep. longer acceptable to have the, use the same password on more than one site anymore. Um, and then go through and change your passwords from time to time. You know, there's, I know that recently the NIST came back and said, oh, you don't really need to change your passwords. But it's still, uh, I don't know, I'm still yeah, torn on that. No, I don't, I don't think, I don't like password changes personally, as long as the original password is actually a good one. Well, and you could even, uh, if you looked at some of the stuff I talked about earlier, like the script, you could take that first five characters and set a script that every now and then runs it against. Not that Troy mm -hmm. Hunt is the definitive, but he is very active, and every time there's a new breach, including him and Krebs tweeted back and forth about this, like he keeps adding to the list all the time. Uh, so he keeps that, and he's got an API. You can just run a curl command and add your last five characters at the end of his API and a curl command, and you know, it's, it's a canary. If your password, if Troy Hunt yep. says I updated it, and next thing you know, you get a notice that guess where your password is. You yeah. better think about everywhere that password is. And I had this happen on uh, G Suite just the other day. One of my users, I got an email uh, at my at my company. It says, uh, "Yeah, this person's password is on some list." So. Yep. Um, made them mm. change it. There's even an Active Directory integration now um, that people have. There's a list. If you go to Troy Hunt's website, uh, when you look up his API, he has links to everyone who sent them what they did with his API and how they implemented it. One of them I thought was interesting is right down to Active Directory to check mm. people's passwords to say, are there passwords? Because it can be the first step that you got you know, a previous compromised list um, to double-check your security. Yep. Granted, like I said, Troy Hunt's got the biggest list of it, um, but it's still very interesting because he does maintain it. So it's not definitive, but if you are on the list, it's bad. But just don't assume you're secure because you're not on the list because you may not have got the file updated yet. Right. Yeah. Anyway, so the next article I have is geolocating SSH hackers in real time. That looked cool. I, I, I followed cool. that. I haven't set it up yet. but uh, So this article talks about uh, how, they, how this project really it is it's this web view and it's watching your logs of who's trying to uh, connect and attack your server and it gives you a graphic of across the globe of how many people are hitting it and and from where and uh, and then you can kind of get like an idea of like well and you know in their screenshot they show on here you know it's all over the world but there's a lot of people in China you know and there's a lot of people uh, you know all over that's that's connecting to it, but they, it's, and then what's really neat about the article is they go through and each step of how they take, uh, 
one log and another one and and parse them and put them together so that it comes up with this uh, you know information that's put that's now displayed in the web page. So it, it's neat if you're uh, if you're a web developer or something. It's it's interesting to go through and watch how they go through and do the and you know create this. Um. Something you, if you have an Amazon instance, is because it was set for, uh, to expand a little bit on this, is uh, Teapot, T-Pot. Um, it's by T-Mobile, and it's a uh, giant honeypot that has a whole, I believe it has elastic search and everything on top of it, so you can stand it up in Amazon and go, wow, there's a lot of stuff going around the internet. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I, Yeah, it'll track all kinds of different things and watch it. Honeypots are fun watching all the, like you said, the attacks in real time, where they're coming from, where they're going. And mm-hmm. uh, once again... Ready to farm, Phil? <laughs> <laughs> right. All right. And so in the last article I have is the curious case of the Raspberry Pi in the network closet. That's a hurry about read. this. That was a fun read. Yeah, this is neat. And what's what's neat is so he, he goes through this guy is a a, a network uh, admin at in a company and he goes through or he got a a message from one of their uh, people in the closet, in the network guy. I can't remember who exactly it was. But he says, hey, I found this Raspberry Pi, and it's not supposed to be here. And it talks, you know, he goes into somewhat detail about how he went through and figured out what the Raspberry Pi was doing, who it was from, you know, and, and uh, you know, just doing, you know, somewhat of a preliminary kind of... Security... Um, yeah, security, but reverse engineering of what it did, and uh, I think it anybody it's anybody that's interested in some any kind of reverse engineering, uh, you know, you should read this article and and it really gives you ideas of what to step through and and what to look at. Yeah, he did a good debrief on it. Um, in I like how he covered the part of how did it get there. He goes, well, the short answer is someone who left was allowed to keep their keys for 30 days after they left. He goes, that, the answer to that real question is that's above my pay grade how that happened. Exactly. <laughs> <Wow>. <laughs> Not my decision to make. <laughs> right. Yeah, so there's so many lessons learned of how to look at something and then how to what not to do you know, yeah. to, to make sure it doesn't happen to you. Because essentially, once you find a vice physically in a network because someone had physical access to it, um, speaking of which, I have a bunch of hackers I invited for an event I'm having in a couple mm-hmm. weeks here. So, you know, I'm going to double check all the ports are turned off. And... <laughs> <laughs> yep. Right. It's going to yeah. be fun. Y'all are invited. <laughs> Keep an eye on them. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, what it came down to is that this Raspberry Pi was plugged into the network, sniffing the network. Yep. And then it had a, its own separate Wi Fi that would offload all that data. So then he had nowhere to look to say, oh, wait, is, that data's got to be right here, right? No, it's gone. So he doesn't know exactly what was taken. Yeah, they had an um, incident we covered a number of years ago, but uh, the person as a contractor left the company. But then he had sh- he, he was a system and he shoulder surfed lots of people. So they did not issue a password rechange with the dev team. So he was logging in as someone else's credentials. Mm-hmm. And... Um, he had all the right credentials. He used them, and he would park next to the building and do it. And so, because the login looked like another dev working, there was never an alarm raised. And he was mm. doing it for intellectual property to keep uh, continuing, mm. gaining knowledge on them. Before finally, someone just goes, "Why is this car in a parking lot? Didn't he quit?" Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, yeah, you got to be careful on that because obviously, it's well. If you've been shoulder surfed, you let a staff member go. 
not a horrible idea if anyone that he could have potentially shoulder surfed, if there's you know a local office of workers, change all their passwords, change their security search. That is out, a valid so. uh, reason for changing passwords, definitely, especially de- depending on the nature of the person and, and the reason for leaving. It might be a good idea. Hey, everybody, change your password. Yeah, yeah, because yeah. he just parked outside the building and said, yeah, I can keep seeing what new code bases are being updated. And to back up a point about password managers, if you have a password manager, which you should, you'll also have a list of all of the websites uh, that you use for work and non-work things, so you know exactly where to go to change passwords. Yeah, that was a handy thing when we've had people leave um, from this company. It's just we know everything that is shared because we use uh, LastPass to share out the passwords with the staff. It's an instant audit list. First, I'm changing it all, but I also know exactly what I had shared with that particular user because it's all listed, it's Mm -hmm. documented. So, one, I can easily disable a list, and away we go. Yeah. All right. Is there somebody here? Okay. Just ice Jay, falling. Jay just had this thought, you know, or had, you know. I have cameras on the outside. Hearing of the some interesting Yeah, hearing. Yeah. Anyway, so uh, I guess we're coming to the end of the show. And yeah. one, one thing I want to mention really quickly the magic number is 159 meg- megabytes. That's how much RAM it's using, uh, the Game Hub. 159 megabytes. For app image. Yeah. The app okay. image yep. of GameHub. That's the app Game image, Hub. yep. Hmm. 159 megabytes. All right. Trying to think of, yeah. All right, well, I guess that we're coming all. to the end of the show. Um, and uh, remember the feedback, send it to that show at smlr.us. Um, or if you want to mail it, uh, you can mail yeah. it to Lawrence Systems Mailing Address, 144140 Pennsylvania Road, or just look up lawrencesystems.com. That is where the studio is located. We'll okay. accept snail mail. We get packages all day. <laughs> <laughs> All right, uh, so you've come to the end of the show. This is was episode 299. Apt security update. Mm-hmm. And this is Tony Bemis. Tom Lawrence. Phil Parada. Jay LaCroix. And have a good week. You've been listening to the Sunday Morning Linux Review. If you would like more information about this or other shows, go to smlr.us. Feel free to send comments to show at smlr.us or give us a call at 734-258-7009. I'm John Miller. If you don't like it, you can bite my 8-bit metal ass. That's bite with a Y. <laughs>